I do apologize for getting here a few minutes late. Um, I'm not sure we could have gone much further north for a Los Angeles event. Do you agree? So, uh, but it's absolutely wonderful, and to the company who's made it available, we really ex extend our, our appreciation. I did uh, uh, email Todd Wilson and Dave Ferguson to say, next time we do this, can we have one in the south as well? Uh, just to kind of uh, d draw more guys who are on a similar journey to the one we're on, and um, I'm sure they'll kind of give that some consideration. I want to thank the ladies who are here. I'm so sorry my wife isn't here. She normally travels with me about 90-something percent of the time, but uh, we leave for New York tomorrow. I've got to go and do a leadership handover in a church in Manhattan, and um, our boy finishes school at lunchtime today with school exams and so on, so it was just a wild day that and she was scheduled to be here with her. She's actually much nicer than me. She's kinder. She's more attractive. Um, normally when I go to meet new people, I do take her with because I kind of say, hi, my name's, this is Meryl, you know, and then they kind of, oh, we really like Meryl. You can come if you want, you can play. Um, and it really is a joy and a delight to be here. My brief, as I understand it, really is to just engage us together today around a passage of scripture and uh, to both find the heart of the Lord on it, to encourage and strengthen each other for some prayer and ministry. Um, and uh, I love the notion of us collaborating together. Um, I'm happy with monologues, but I think a format like this really does lend itself to some interaction, some Q&A. Uh, even if you say, no, oh, Chris, I don't get what you're saying, man. I don't know if I agree. I'm really, really comfortable with that, partly because I was a high school teacher and it seems like another life, uh, in, in another journey, and, uh, but partly because I think we are wrestling our way through what God's on about today. We're doing it together, but we'll talk more about that in a moment. Let me tell you a little of my story, only so that you understand where I come from, what the accent tells you, and why I will say certain things that I say. 1976, December of that year, mid-70s, I came to faith. Jesus came hunting. He headhunted me. I was long-haired, uh, jean, jeans, t-shirt, student, first year university. I had uh, just been involved in a pub fight. My eye was cut up from a wine bottle that hit me. Well, actually, someone was holding the wine bottle when it hit me. It kind of had a projectile factor to it. And I came home to my parents' house. I was studying out of state. And uh, I lay on my bed in my parents' room. And I said, Jesus, I need to know if you're real. There's nothing inside of me that has any appeal for a kind of a pleasant or cultural Christianity. I find no value in it. I didn't then, I don't now. I, I, I find it actually incredibly unhelpful. And so I said, Jesus, if you're real, I'm a hedonist. I'm a pleasure-seeking animal, and I need to know if you're real, because if you're real, I'm in. If you're not real, I'm out. It's as simple as that. There's no room, there's no gray room here for um, kind of mediocrity. So right at the outset, you know, I'm a really passionate guy, and, 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 and I'm in an all-in story. This is going to cost me everything. Well, I'd love to tell you that something really amazing happened. If you're of a charismatic background, I'd love you to, to tell you of a vision. It didn't happen if you're of a cessationist background. God didn't speak to me right then, so you're really happy. So everyone's like really happy right now, except to say that God did meet with me and I knew I was different. And then God put me, I was a suburban kid, and he put me in the middle of an inner city church. Um, uh, and we, did com we lived communally. We, we, we lived in communal homes together, and we worked the street, and we preached on the street. And uh, 
God took me from this world of hidden suburbia and stuck me into the, where the city throbs. We worked with the prostitutes. We worked with the prisoners. We worked with every form of, 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 of fringe and radical elements of humanity. We didn't have a team that welcomed at the door. We had bouncers. The two bouncers were Big Dave for obvious reasons. He was called Big Dave. And the other was the South African heavyweight bodybuilding champion. And they used to hug you when you came in, not because we were charismatic per se, but that was because we needed to smell if you were drunk. Because we had more than a few tongues, but it wasn't charismatic in origin. It was more intoxication in origin. And so they would come and lean out and put their hands on you. All of that to say, all of those things fashion us. My mentor as a, as spiritually said this. He said, what you get saved into is more important than what you get saved out of. Think about it for a moment. What you get saved into is more important than what you get saved out of. You can get saved out of anything you wish, but what you get saved into will be the defining framework for your spiritual journey. What people will get saved into under your ministry will define them for the rest of their days. If you present a nice middle-class suburban type of Pleasantville Christianity, you will not change the world. You may grow large, but you won't change the world. So do you want an adventure of faith and uncertainty? Then you buy into a high-end radical Christianity. Without certainty, there's loads of doubts and vulnerabilities. No guarantee you'll grow. But you will change. You will impact. So we spent a number of years in that, and we started planting churches around South Africa. This is the 70s. Church planting was not the flavor of the month. There were no church planting conferences. We didn't have an idea what we were doing. I was about 19, 20 at the time. All that we knew that we wanted to change the cities of South Africa by planting churches. And our church planting strategy was simple. Go. That was it. You leave. And if the, kind of, the idea was to plant, you left that week. It wasn't processed, nothing was, nothing was critiqued, you didn't do your homework, you just went. So we planted around South Africa, planted into London, Amsterdam, we had a team on the way to Boston when the whole thing imploded, and I as a 24-year-old worship leader, school teacher, closed the movement down. What a great first act of leadership. I just happened to be on the stage leading worship. The man who was leading announced that he was going back into business. He walked out the warehouse and that was that, chapter, church planning chapter number one, done. About 40 of us that remained moved across the university and we planted the church which Meryl and I came to lead. And that spent the next 25 years of our lives, we have been involved, we've been involved in a, in a, in a very exciting, passionate, hardcore um, church planting journey. The guy, Dudley Daniel, who was our, my spiritual father as a leader, uh, he basically said he believes that the call to the church is to disciple the nations. Who wants to change the world? Our hands went up. We didn't have a clue what that meant, but we said we're in. And we spent up until 1989 just planting around South Africa. And then in 1990, we started planting internationally, and we planted in about 60 countries in a decade. It's not very fancy. It's not, it's not very fancy, it, it, it has lots of failures, it has lots of heroes, it has lots of surprises and God turns and kindnesses, but all of that to say it's fashioned me. So a lot of what I'm going to talk about today comes out of that journey. I am passionate about church planting. I want you to know 
it leaks out of me to such an extent that in my first church in South Africa, my heart was to empty it every five years. That was my, I want to get people up. I want to train them up and get them out. I want to get them out into the nations, not L.A., the nations, I mean, not just L.A., the nations of the world, this naive, wonderful passion that what Jesus had in mind in the text is still relevant and vibrant today. I want to I take you on a big story. You see, sometimes the enemy gets it right to shrink our story to, to our current world. We've got 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 people that we, we were struggling and eking out a church plant, and, and, and he shrinks us to the size of those 15 people. But when we go back to the text, God rips that shrinkage off us, that cling wrap up off us, and he thrusts us back into a, an incredibly large story with brothers and sisters all over the world who are as passionate about this great and glorious gospel as we are. So we led one church that we planted for 15 years. We moved to America 15 years ago and replanted a church. A church with a charismatic, independent charismatic history, a large history, not all good. And we had to replant that, which is another whole story in and of its own right. And a year ago, we handed that over, and now we are doing what we are passionate about. Meryl and I are with friends around the world. The three things that we remain passionate about, number one, as Matt said, we are working with large churches to help them become movements. My mega churches, I think, are realizing more and more it's not really as fun. Once you've got 1,000, you've got 2,000, 5,000, you've got five meetings, six meetings, seven meetings. Is that it? There must be more than this. Is that it? Do we have another meeting? And then do we have a meeting with Hawaiian shirts? And then we had one for the Czech shirt people. And then we have the spiky hair meeting. And then we have the cool hipster meeting. Is that it? Is, is that what we're going to do the rest of our lives? Kill me now. That's it? Surely. Surely that's not it. And so there's this exciting stirring in the hearts of many mega guys who are saying, God, there's got to be more to the story than just another thousand people. I was very privileged to sit in a meeting with Rock Harbor staff about two or three years ago. The staff were all away. And I remember Mike Erie getting up the teaching pastor, and he said, uh, tears in his eyes, he said, is this it? So do I just preach in another meeting of a weekend, and then just one more meeting, is that it? And I wanted to shout from back, say, no, this isn't it. This is just the beginning. If anything, it's the end of the beginning. That's it. Now the journey begins. The second thing that Meryl and I, with friends, love doing is working with church planters. I've just been in London came in three to four days ago, just spending time. I took a couple of young American pastors with me, connected them with some young British pastors, put them in a room together and just had fun. I said, come on, let's talk together. Let's find out. What are you guys doing in a postmodern, post-Christian context? Uh, because where you are, we're headed. America's going down that track at a rapid rate. Uh, talk to us. Tell us what you're doing. And so we love the being in the church planting, church replanting conversation. And then thirdly, obviously, just in leadership development and training. So that's a little of who we are. Oh, my kids. I have three kids. I like telling you these things because there really is nothing fancy about us. We'll go to the text in a moment and we'll throw it around. But uh, my eldest daughter and her husband lead a church in Perth, Australia. Horrible thing about preaching the nations is that your kids believe it. They end up going there. They're arriving here on Tuesday on my anniversary. They, uh, they come in to visit, for, and um, Mark is being sworn in as an American. I'm, I'm telling you, he married my daughter so he could get citizenship. I'm absolutely persuaded, because I'm an all-African-American. Um, so 
that's my daughter. My second daughter just graduated Biola. Uh, she spent a year at Oxford in, in, in England studying C.S. Lewis. I'm green with envy. I haven't overcome that at all. She went to meet with all his old mates at his birthday and sat and heard all the old stories. I'm absolutely envious. And she has the unique privilege of turning out, trying out for the Oxford rowing team as a novice. She'd never rowed before and killed a goose on the Thames at five o'clock in the morning. I think it's a rare, rare thing. I'm sure, I'm sure there's a plaque somewhere on the Oxford Rowing Club, the, the goose she killed. And then I have a 12-year-old little American boy. He loves America, as do we. And he loves his soccer and his rugby and guns. So all of you pacifists, I'm really sorry, but I come from Africa. We kind of like guns. So that's our little story. Married 31 years on Tuesday. And I must say, I am absolutely in love with my wife. She is a mystery to me. I don't get her. I never have. Um, I think she does it purposely so we remain married, but I'm not good enough to get married again. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just like a one-girl guy, and, and I, th- I think, I think we're, we're a pretty cool team, so I'm sorry she's not here. Does that give you a little window of who I am? I hope so. Would you turn with me? We're going to go to the text that's been afforded me. What time do I finish, Matt, this session? Okay, that's a dangerous thing to say to a teacher, you know that. All right, all right. And, and please, I, I really mean that I'm so happy for you to, to um, chat, to tell a story, to add to the conversation. My accent, I've tried to make it international. I tried to speak like an American. My kids pleaded with me not to. They said it's like the suckiest American accent you can imagine. <laughs> So this is the only one I have. This is English is my second language. Afrikaans is my first. It's my home language. It's kind of a Dutch hybrid. So uh, if you struggle to hear me, just say, can you repeat that again? And, and if it's worthy, I'll repeat it. Otherwise, we'll just leave it and, and move on. My text. Precious, precious people. Therefore, Hebrews chapter 12. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder or the author or the forerunner and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Do you mind if I pray? Jesus, we love making much of you. Our default button is to talk about you. There are times we don't know what the next step is. We have no strategy. Truth be told, we don't even know if our vision's a good one. We've got people who are looking to us, and we're not even sure what they'll find. But we do love talking about you. We do love engaging you with affection and worship and adoration and applause. We do love telling our stories of how you've intervened in our lives and how you've taken ordinary men and women just like us and you've done extraordinary things. For the young ones amongst us, Lord, I'm so envious that they've got all this in front of them. And let these gray hairs on my head count for something. Each a story each a God encounter, each a moment of revelation, be it of my sinfulness or of your splendor. But let it count for something today. For those who are downtrodden, Lord, and discouraged, may they leave today just robed in the Christ courage 
that you so readily grant. For those who are uncertain, would you speak to us? If the next step is unclear, whether it's a shuffle or a leap, would you make it clear for us? For those whose marriages are taking strain, and if the truth be told today, they're really quite grumpy about their marriage. Would you be kind enough to show us how to love that girl, that incredible daughter of yours, or that man? Really what we're asking for is a whole series of miracles. South from us lies 20 plus million people, increasingly without a God story, increasingly preoccupied with their own dreams or survival, without a real understanding of who you are. We look south and we petition heaven. We pound on the doors of heaven. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Holy Spirit, we can't get this job done without you. We offer you our humblest fragilities. We are a frail group of men and women. But boy, do we love you. Boy, do we love this gospel. Boy, do we love your church. And I ask today that you would breathe on us. Breath of God, breathe on us. In Jesus' name, amen. I love going back to Genesis. I love going back to Genesis because it's the best picture we have of before the beginning, or right at the beginning, or God's original intention, or what God really had in mind. I love the fact that uh, he introduces himself as an artist. In the beginning, God created. Now, uh, you know, I, I want to put my best foot forward. I want to meet you today. So I'm going to tell you how beautiful my wife is. I'm, did you notice I told you my daughter went to Oxford? Like from an English background, that's pretty cool. You know? What I didn't tell you is that she sang a song that was nominated for an Emmy, but I told you that now. See, we tend to put our best foot forward when we introduce ourselves, don't we? But God says, I'm going to put my best foot forward and I'm going to introduce myself to you and say, Hi, my name's God and I'm an artist. I create. Now, surely he should have said something really important like, Hi, I'm God, I'm a, I'm a structural genius. Or, I'm God, I'm almighty, I'm powerful, I'm king, I am awesome, I am majestic, I'm powerful, I'm perfect, I'm holy. All the stuff that if you or I were God, we'd probably say, Hi, my name's God, I'm perfect. He doesn't do that. He introduces himself as an artist, so surely it gives us a window that this life we're in is going to be a life full of color. It's going to be a very expansive life. It's going to be a life full of perfume and surprises, and it's going to have depth to it, and it's going to have uh, a tactile pieces to it. Does it make sense to you? I, I hope it does, because if we understand that, it opens up vistas of what God wants to do with us that keeps us fresh with new ideas. Every generation has one or two key voices that do church well in a certain genre or way. And what invariably happens, if we don't understand God's the artist, subconsciously we're under pressure to become Tim Keller. So we listen to podcasts, and we go, we do our pilgrimage to Redeemer. I do, I love going to Redeemer. Uh, Sunday night I've got a meeting, otherwise I'd find out where Keller is. And unashamedly visit him. I love his four-piece jazz band, the way they do worship. And, and I love hearing him speak. Or, or Driscoll. You know, he, he's, he's a once-in-a-generation man. 
uh, strong, vibrant, confrontational, surprising, uh, expansive, large, abrasive. So there's the subconscious, well, maybe we should like do Mars Hill. Or some may have more of a Bill Johnson type feel for, you know, an hour's worship and then come Holy Spirit and stuff. My point being this, if we understand right at the outset of our, of our church planting journey, God is the artist and he's going to paint you and paint your church uniquely. You can enjoy the ride. But men and women around you will try to get you to conform to their image of success or what they think this whole spiritual journey should look like. Does that make sense? And they look around, understandably so, because you must imitate the faith of your leaders, except they imitate the model of the leaders. So they want to be a little Driscollian, bring a little, little bit of Driscoll in here, or Dave Ferguson in, or Alan Hirsch, or whoever, uh, Francis Chan. You want to bring a piece of all of those, and then we end up with this collage building that you don't know is going to stand, because we want to make sure we miss out on nothing and embrace everything. And the problem with many church planters is we end up building squatter camps. Because we're uncertain of what it is God has us to be, firstly, and then through me, what God wants me to build. I have a friend who says, I never read books on marriage because none of them are about my wife. I, th I think there's something in there. I mean, Sandy is Sandy. No book about marriage is about Sandy. It's about woman, as if women are just this one, this one uh, framed essence of gender, and therefore your wife will respond to you in this way. And you and I know that's not true. They're a mystery. We never fathom them out. It's God's way to keep men humble. In the beginning, God created. I'd love you to go away from today. And wherever your quiet places may be, go and sit and ponder that verse. And just reflect, God, you are an artist. You are creator. You are creating. Francis Schaeffer, the great philosopher of the 80s, said that God, we're in the eighth day of creation. God continues to create. The second thing that interests me about that is the fact that God gives man a mandate. Now remember my story, and this will now make sense. He said to man, I want you to go, uh, Genesis 1.28, I want you to increase or be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Now you say, hang on, Chris, hang on, hang on. Aren't they in the garden? Absolutely. Wasn't the garden the destination? Absolutely not. The garden was never the destination. It was the base of operations. God said, from this base, I want you to fill the earth. I want you to have kiddies, and the kiddies will get married, and they'll have kiddies, and I want you to use this whole process to increase, multiply, fill the earth. And so from the outset, how many of you are church planting? How many, yes, how many of you are church planting in the last year? Right, you are about to, or have you started yet, Andy? Uh, about to. Okay. All right, where are you planting? Uh, Park, Los Angeles. Okay, okay. At the back? Okay, someone else put their hand up. All right, so we got a we got a few planters here. How many of you planted within the last five years? All right, how many of you are pastors currently? Okay, okay, good, good. There's a good spread here. So, when this pre-fall ingredient gets into your heart, and you step back for a moment and say, "Now, how shall we do church?" 
Somehow, whatever it looks like, whether you want to wear robes and have incense and smoking handbags, or whether you want to be cool and hip and converse and t-shirts and urban outfitters, it doesn't really matter. The, the, the robing doesn't matter. It's what's in the DNA. Is the in the DNA increase? Or is there increase and multiply? Or is there increase and multiply and fill the earth? Adam and Eve, he said it to one couple. He said, well, Chris, we can't do that. We're only 20 people. He didn't say it to hundreds. He said it to two people. He said, I want you to increase. I want you to multiply. And I want you to fill the earth. And one of the things that I want to implore us to, guys and gals, is in the DNA of our community to have that in there. The temptation is to increase only. The temptation is last Sunday we had 57 people. This Sunday we have 82 people. Thank you, Jesus, we're growing. And the next Sunday it's back to 64. But then we add in the kids and the knives and forks and we feel a whole lot better about ourselves. You see, we've got to define DNA before we define success. Define your DNA. Is this church going to have an essential garden invested DNA. We're going to increase or be fruitful. We are going to multiply and we are going to fill the earth. You with me? And then the third thing which we find written into the garden is the the model of family. Family is still the microcosm of what the church needs to be in the bigger story. Now, one of the advantages I have is I come in from another culture with different lenses. So do you mind if I bring some of my South African lenses in today and maybe just rip some of the, yours off? John Stott, the great British theologian, said, our culture blinds, deafens, and dopes us. Our culture blinds, deafens, and dopes us. In other words, we, we, we're being influenced by our culture even though we don't realize it. So where are you blinded? Well, in apartheid South Africa, I was blinded because I grew up in a culture that was fundamentally racist. The color of your skin defined your strata in society. I came to faith and knew instantly that was wrong. And it amazed me that white people would argue a high-valued racism. Now, I say all of that because I point a finger at no culture. Because, goodness me, we have none to point. But people would come into, Americans would come into South Africa and say, so the black people have the vote? Oh, no, 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 no. So why not? Um... They're not educated. What we'll do is we'll give black people who are educated the vote. And you sitting thinking from America saying, you're kidding, right? this, This doesn't make sense. This is not even logical or reasonable because our culture never is. But we get it from our mother's knee by the songs she sings, the stories she tells, and the fact that a black lady would work in our home and she would call me bossy, little boss. So from the age of five, I was a leader. I was telling an adult what to do. You with me? Now, I'm painting a really black picture I'm embarrassed by. I kind of sit thinking, is that for real? Thank goodness Nick's here because he knows it's true. But that's because our culture blinds, deafens, and dopes us. He has the point. The American church is defined more by business than by family. The corporate model has infiltrated the American church and much of what is done is defined by business, not family. 
Do you have a board of elders? Really? Is that in the Bible? Anywhere? No, it's not. It's in the boardroom. Do you have elders? Of course we have elders. But that is a family picture. It is a town village picture of those who are knowledgeable and can be trusted and are key catalytic players in the city who watch the coming and the going. They sit around and monitor the health and well-being of a community. They're not board members who have a vote. They're family fathers who catalyze the well-being of a community. You with me? Just some lenses change the way we view it and we start building things differently. So we've got the God as the architect, I mean God is the, the creator. We've got the increase, multiply, and fill the earth. It's a great adventure. It's a big story. Get your people into a big story. If the biggest story you have is come to Life Group on Wednesday, it's a sad story, and you are not going to see people passionate about Jesus. You with me? That businessman who flies in from Berlin, who's just sealed a $24 million deal, he wants to come into the church, and he wants you and I to give him something that's bigger than he's just dealt with in Berlin. He doesn't want a small, all right, guys, have you, have you, you know, everyone going to go to life group on Tuesday or Wednesday, whatever the case may be, and, and don't forget, and he's sitting there saying, I have to shrink to serve Jesus. No. Increase, multiply, fill the earth, give them something to die for, give them a big story, give them an opportunity that this God is bigger than they could ever imagine. Say, but Chris, we've got 20 people. Really? Jesus had 12. And he got 12 to change the world, 20, you, you up on him. Makes sense. God created, increase, multiply, fill the earth. Whenever we wrestle for, through local church realities, earth it in family, you're probably going to find the right answer in there. You're probably going to find that in there. And I want to so encourage you to, to instill a story of multiplication in from the beginning. Don't wait till you're big one day. I remember sitting in South Africa and there was an American guy who came to a conference we were at who was planting in Brazil. And uh, he, he said, what we instill into our church planters is the good cow principle. Good cow principle, what is that? He said, every good cow gives, produces a calf once a year. He said, we expect our church planters to plant one church every year. Now I understand the context slightly different, and et cetera, et cetera. But, but we can't hide from the fact that that is in the DNA of our community. Let's pause there for a moment. Any questions or comments, even disagreements, I'm happy with. If not, we'll just go to Hebrews. Yes, sir. Question on when you were talking about uh, the fact that one of the problems is we're not quite sure who, who we are, is that what you said, and what God wants to do through us? Yeah. Elaborate on that a little bit. I think what happens, if I'm understanding your, correct, your, your question correctly, I think what happens is in our vulnerability, whether it is church planting or church leading, is that we are sometimes so desperate to succeed, whatever that means, is we end up trying, I mean, and the gospel. Now, we're going to talk honorable. I'm going to open my heart and my chest to you. Planted this little church of 40 people, grew to about 150 or whatever it was, or 200, and we just couldn't get over that. And I pleaded with God. What I didn't say loudly to him was, I'm ambitious. I want a big church. Now, I'm going to do whatever it takes. Now, this may sound funny, but embarrassing. I said, Lord Jesus, even if like Benny Hinn, I have to wear a white suit, I will do it. 
I mean, I thought I was being so sacrificial. I wasn't. I was ruthlessly ambitious. I wanted the biggest church in town. If wearing a white suit gave me that, I would do it. I look back now with embarrassment, thinking God must have just shaken his head and said, are you for real, boy? Are you for real? You know? I think what we have to do is find our place of rest in the sun. Say, God, this is who I am. You've called me to be a church planter. This is who I am. I'm a... Paul says to the Corinthians, I am who I am by the grace of God. It's just being comfortable with who I am. These are my strengths. These are my weaknesses. This is what I can do. This is what I cannot do. And then secondly, the comfort with uh, who and what my church is. And my church is not a collage. I don't run around like a supermarket just pulling different stuff off the shelves, chucking it in there and saying, oh, look at my church. Really? Are you organic or are you chocolatified. You know, we don't know who you are. You, you're confusing us. And I think sometimes, again, in our effort to be quote-unquote successful, we try everything. I mean, missional is one of the big words at the moment. I'm not sure too many know what it means. I'm not sure I do. But it's like we bring in the new catchphrase. And uh, what in, invariably ends up happening is that we, we're not confident in the identity that we are as a community. You know, um, my family we, we do some pretty cool things together. And then every now and again, I hear someone has this really cool holiday and they go camping. And then I think, my kids are going to grow up warped and twisted because we haven't gone camping. You know? So now maybe we better go camping, which we haven't done, which I'm really relieved. And, and so what happens is we are bouncing off things that we are not doing rather than the safety of, this is who we are. And you know what? We do this really well. We, we don't do lots of things well, but we do three or four things really well, and we're really comfortable with that. Does that make sense, sir? Okay. Did you want to tell a story? Do you want to add to that? Well, I just, uh, the second thing I wanted to say is I think you're right on the money when you say the American church is fashioned after the business rather than on the family. And I just, I, I, I don't know if that's off topic, but, I, but that is such a powerful point to me. I think, I think we need to do business with Yeah. Them. Yeah, yeah, I, I really do. I think it requires such wonderful humility that we get back to a posture of family, you know. It, it's so funny. My grandkids, can I be honest with you? I, I, I speak in some large events, but my grandkids know me as Papa. And it's so vulnerably wonderful, you know. They're, they're not impressed with me. They're not, it's like, get down and get dirty with me, Papa. You know, and I can't say, well, you know, I... Spoke to 4,000 people last week, and a little bit of respect will be good. No, they want dirty. They want mud pies. They, they want wrestling. They, they want, you know, uh, let's go down to the beach. That's what they want. And I think family just ensures humility. Uh, family ensures tenderness. They, they, they're no super studs. They, they're just, they're just, just family together, doing life together. And I think... I just think God keeps taking the church back there and we keep reversing it. We keep making CEOs out of fathers. And let's just stay fathers. A CEO doesn't belong in the body of Christ, you know? So. Yeah, please, guys, please. Yeah, go for it. I feel like that's a, re- a complete rewiring of people. Like, that's yeah. the hard part is there's an expectation that people have of leaders yeah. to be CEOs rather than fathers. Yeah. Even that language is such a weird shift for people to receive. So I think it's a big task, but... Yeah, yeah. And, and words matter, Matt. I mean, if you guys can, all of us... Because Mary and I have said, I'm 53, you know, can we go and plant again? If God says we're in, man, we're in, you know. 
but, but words matter. And so I remember coming here and I was Pastor Chris and I said, you know what? Jesus calls me Chris. My mother calls me Chris. My kids call me dad. You know, I, I, I think Chris is fine. Sure, Pastor Chris. And I'm like, whatever, you know. It's this deeply ingrained spiritual subculture v- vocabulary. And it seems harmless at one level, but the problem is it creates another thing. I actually, um, uh, someone came to me and said to me, Chris, we really don't want you to talk about your frailties. And I said, wow, that's interesting. Why not? Because they said, we don't want to see you that way. And I said, well, look, it's better that I pop that bubble right now. You know, I cussed this morning. Should I tell you a couple of other things? Can we just get this out the way now? You know, can we just sort it out now? And then, then we can listen to each other or not. But I'm not going to bow to that subliminal message. We want to highly exalted. We want to give you the corner office. We want to give you. We arrived in LA, and, and there outside the front door of the campus of the church was, was Pastor Chris and, and Pastor Merrill's parking bays. And I said, what's this? No, 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 that's your parking bays. I said, would you move them right now? Why should I have a special parking bay? Do we believe in the priesthood of all believers here? Is there anyone who doesn't believe that? Well, then if you're going to do that for me, make sure that everyone has their own parking bay. Well, just remove it. Just take it out because I'm really not that interested in that. Does it make sense? So, I, but it is intentional. Thanks. Yeah. Sure. As many as there are as many stories as you can think of. Um, I think that some people are again. I think there's a little bit of a cultural drift. I remember listening to a, to a, a tape of someone. I forget where, but here in America, someone getting up and saying this guy arrived in town to plant a church, and the first thing he did is he went to the mortuary or the uh, forest lawn and bought his plot. You know, and the whole place, oh! And I wanted to say, no. No, because you just disqualified Paul, the great apostle. You know, he, he stayed in Thessalonica three weeks and he planted a church. What a bummer if, sorry, that's all right. I mean, what a bummer if, if he'd have gone and bought his plot. He would have died in the fourth week. But they pulled him out, said, they're going to kill you, dude. Get out, get out. And, and, and the church started there. We tend to stereotype strategies. Some people are phenomenal punches. They, they just, boom, they crack a door open, but leave them there for long and they'll empty the church. I just had to sit very tenderly with someone the other day. They, they, they poured and they are phenomenal groundbreakers. They'll talk to anyone. They just off their pray, winter, summer, snow, pray, whatever, but they are good for about three years. Because after three years, their desire to punch and pioneer doesn't help a church plant. Because a church plant can't always be in pioneering mode. There are times there's opportunity for love and discipleship and collaboration and prayers and, 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 and the good stuff that comes with doing community together. Some are pioneers. They crack new places up, but then they've got to move on. Peter. Uh, we never know if Peter planted any churches, but if, I mean, he certainly was part of the Jerusalem plant, and then beyond that, we're not 100% sure. John, on the other hand, was a great uh, community of love catalyzer. It seems like that he established all these communities of love. My point being, there is no A church planter, B church planter, there isn't one size fits all. Some will plant, like Rick Warren, and stay there forever and change the world. Um, Brian Houston. 
I met Brian in South Africa in about 1988-89. He said, God's told me to change the way the world worships. Well, Hillsong has. They changed the way the world worships. He stayed in one church for almost three decades now. Now they've planted, they're busy planting Hillsongs all over the world. That's their story. Rick Warren's his story. That's the rare story. Most or many church planters really are catalytic pioneers. They go in, they stimulate it, they get it going, they crack it open, and then God says, go and do it again. You know, one of the things that was, um, I hope this is helpful, guys. At least, at least, at the end of today, at least I'm going to get you to know what questions to ask. You know what I mean? I don't know if I've got all the answers. But I remember when Dudley, who was, who was kind of our leader, um, he had a large church in Johannesburg, South Africa, and he, he, he called us in one day, uh, and he said, uh, I feel like God's called me to move to Australia. And we're like, you're kidding. Who leaves uh, the fastest growing church, a large church in Johannesburg, in an incredibly, I mean, that people in the church that owned mines, you know, not like owned a Starbucks, they owned mines. So who leaves a church that has businessmen who own mines to go to 20 people in Adelaide, Australia? It makes no natural sense. So we, 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 Helped him. We were Job's comforters. You know, thank you. Just you had bad pizza last night. Just sleep it off. You know, stay there. You know, you can change the world. You know how much money you've got in the account. And he just sat there with tenderness, let us burp all over him. And then, like, no, I think God has spoken and pointed to the Pauline model that those who've done it go and do it again and go and do it again and go and do it again. My point being, um, there is no one size fits all. Find your rhythm. What have Meryl and I done? We planted one church, did it for 14 years. We replanted a church. In other words, a church with a history that we had to recalibrate. And we led that for 15 years. Um, in that time, we planted out from both churches. And um, that's our story. But others have different stories. Make sense? Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. Some of it is best seen looking backwards because it's the fruit that you have. Be fruitful, you know. Uh, a little bit of history. I have more years behind me than in front of me. So I really can be quite honest about what I can do and what I can't do because there's almost 30 years of ministry behind me now. When you are, when you are setting off on the, on, on the journey, it's a little bit like which position will I play? I don't know... If NFL football that much. I'm learning, but you know, soccer it's a little bit difficult. You kind of because when kids start playing, you throw the ball in and they all run together like this. You know, it's like there's no position. It's just where's the ball? And then of course the kid who's standing picking their nose way over there, get in the game, you know. Um, and sometimes ministry is a little bit like that. Like we're all in everything. We want to be the worship leader and the prayer and the, the, the preacher and the minister and the lover and the carer and the catalyst and the prophesy. We want to be all those things. We're all running where the ball is. But pretty soon it becomes evident that, you know, I can kick with my left foot. Um, not that good with music, so probably worship isn't my gig. Um, I think God, as we mature, I, I think it is good. And can I throw this in? I think one of the weaknesses of the American church also is that we specialize too quickly. And so we end up putting people in, in a box or, or putting them on a track that really locks them up. If you're in a church planting culture, you've got to try to keep people generalist for as long as you can. If you plant a guy 
who is um, who has only ever been a youth pastor, he's probably going to struggle to adjust to minister to people who've got a 30-year marriage, who are going through this kind of crisis. It's a little bit of midlife. It's a little bit of empty nest. It's a little bit of she's getting foxy again, working out at the gym, and his belly's growing, and the TV's really working over time. You're probably not going to help them much. You know, you'll probably just help and miss the appointment or something. So the, the objective is that the more in the initial stages you catalyze a culture of generalists, you, you experience many things, you serve in many capacities, you, you, you muscle up many body parts so that when you go out to plant, it becomes clearer, it becomes um, clearer sooner, sooner, clearer, whatever. That, that's where your, your true muscle is. I think there are some things that we can, reflecting through our journal, the things that we give ourselves to, they are good catalysts. You know, um, if you find yourselves a student, you love reading, you love getting yourself into the text, I mean, that, there's an indicator. If you love being with people, there's a strong pastoral component. All of those are helpful things. Um, and those who are investing and believing in you can help you define that more clearly. Even the way we develop our church planning strategies, we tend to take them off the shelf. You know, we buy the book, 10 Ways to Have a Fast-Growing Church Plant. And we tend to do that. But again, it's, it, we, I'm not a generic church planter. I'm not a generic pastor. This is who I am. I have strengths. And I've got to build around my strengths. That's God gave them to me, you know. And so there is an ease and a comfort to know this is what we do well. And if you're married and, you're, and, and your lady's very involved, which I hope yours are, um, it's, a, it's a very powerful punch together. Uh, without, I mean, without knowing you, I can't be more specific. But let me kind of praise it. What do people say about you? What is the fruit of your ministry? What do your journals reflect? How, fourthly, how do you spend your time? If you're married, what does your spouse say about you? They're so jolly honest. I hate getting out the pulpit, getting into the car afterwards. And Meryl has some generic comment to make. Like, did you see if so-and-so was there this morning? I thought, oh dear, I've preached really badly. You know, when the conversation is about someone who may or may not have been in the meeting, then I realize it's coming. I really didn't do well today. Um, so I think our spouses can sometimes be very, very helpful for us. And do you want to add anything, Nicholas? Let's quickly go to, to Hebrews, which I think is where we're supposed to be. Um, and I don't want to get into trouble, you know. So, um. Therefore, it's such an interesting connecting word, therefore. It appears often in Hebrews, which means, and I'm leading somewhere, I'm not, I'm not going to do a... I'm going to do a Bible college lecture on you. I, I want to link it to some of the practical pieces we're talking about. I think that therefore has two major components for our conversation here today. I think the one is a theological argument. And, and, and that is the writer, whether it is Paul, we don't know. It doesn't seem to be consistent with his writings. Uh, whether it is Peter, which, which seems to be more complicated than his other writings. Um, whether it is, uh, I think uh, Clement was written as but one of the early church fathers was a possibility. Um, certainly Apollos, Martin Luther really battered for Apollos. He, he thought he loved the eloquence of the, the writing and said that, as we know, Apollos was a fairly eloquent man, a man very gifted. All of that to say, I think the, the approach, and this is for you who are either church planting or replanting, 
the 13 chapters of Hebrews is a remarkable piece because it systematically unpackages Jesus. If you want to understand Hebrews, take the Jesus essence in every chapter and it will delight you and teach it to your people. You will love the fact that it's a book about Jesus. Jesus, Hebrews 1.1 And it just infiltrates it all the way through, landing it in Hebrews 13 with Jesus, the great shepherd. And you systematically unpackage this incredible story, which if time allows, we will, of Jesus and the different, and how can I say it? Not the faces, it sounds like he's a bit schizo, but he is such a marvelously rich in his God-man reality that the author gives us a peep into the different parts that make Jesus who he is. I'm assuming many of you are in the gospel conversation, planting gospel-centered churches. I'm assuming most of you are in context where there is a high appeal for Christologically-centered communities. And I'm delighted with that. In brackets, don't forget we are Trinitarian. Don't preach Christ at the expense of the Father or the Holy Spirit. Those of you who are cessationists, those of you who are more reform backgrounds, it's not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is God. And as Francis Chan writes about in The Forgotten God, He is God. He is fully, completely, utterly, entirely, completely, comprehensively God. So I'm not saying reduce your Christology. I'm just saying increase your pneumatology. Get a working partnering relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, and watch him at work is a remarkable story. We'll get to that later, I'm sure. So that's the first piece. Therefore, what's it? Therefore, it's a systematic unpackaging of, an, of a Christ story. The second thing I, I want to say is that, can I appeal to you without getting too kind of under the hood with this conversation? I want to ask you this question. How biblical do you want to be? All right, exceedingly is good. That's good. That's good. So, here's my, this is like leading with the left, coming with the right. Why are we so reluctant to see the role of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers today? Why are we more comfortable with coaches and mentors than we are with apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers? I think it's a lump in the church. The church planter has in the fivefold gifting of Ephesians chapter 4 the five allies they need to get the job done. I used to be irritated by the notion of a coach or a mentor. I'm not anymore. I understand sometimes we need scaffolding vocabulary to help us. But never to replace the role that the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher has in us planting our churches They are such vital players. And if we want to, after tea, we can go there and scratch around in the text a little bit and see what the text says about them. The apostle is not the guy with the largest church. He's not the modern CEO. He's not the one with the greatest influence, the biggest mouth, or the biggest book uh, contract. Paul says, we're the scum of the earth. We're the last in line. They're not very fancy people, but they are absolutely essential to the task at hand. And so when we look at the Hebrew text here, we find the therefore in place because it has a systematic unfolding, a linear argument of who this Jesus is, and I want to argue the notion 
that God has given us these Ephesians 4 gifts to get the job done. I said to you that we were part of a church planning movement in the 70s that imploded. It was extremely painful. Because many of the guys and girls came out of very raw, rough backgrounds. I mean, you name it, we had people who did that. One of the guys used to follow me around, fortunately, was a guy who was about six foot four, did time in prison for killing a man with his bare hands. He got involved in a street fight, he was a boxer, and he killed the man. Did time in prison. I'm glad he was behind me, not in front of me. The problem was, when the movement imploded, what happened was, many of them went back to their previous lives. So deep was the disillusionment, so heavy was the pain that they really were disoriented. I had a very sweet moment in Perth, Australia a few months ago when one of those men uh, who planted in Pretoria, South Africa, the whole thing imploded. He's basically a, a busker. He's in his 60s. He's a kind of a busker hobo on the street. Went back to drugs and homosexuality. Horrible, horrible story. But the sweet moment was when he sat with me and on my right was my son-in-law who is leading this church, who's 30, and his son, who was sitting next to him, who's also 30, his son is Mark's worship leader. So here were these two 30-year-olds planting a church in Perth, Australia. Here are the two dads who did ministry together in the 70s. Very, very sweet moment. But my point is this. When I look back, and one of the reasons why the, the church planting movement imploded, I want to suggest, suggest there was the absence of in the trenches collaboration with the church planters. Guys, you can't do it alone. And podcasts and conferences won't cut it. You need FaceTime. You need FaceTime. You need guys who are going to love you enough to speak honestly. Two Sunday nights ago, I was in London. And uh, there's a, I won't mention the name. There's a movement here in the West Coast that have just planted a couple into London. And I said to the guy who planted them out, when I go to London, I go and look them up, which we did. Cool little crypt. Crypt is like a basement in an old church. The archways, it looks like a wine cellar. It is very cool. I said to the guy I was with, I said, man, I would want to plant a church right now just because of the cool building, you know? And uh, the couple are dying. They're dying. They've got the podcasts. They've got the conferences. They've got the financial backing, but they've got no one the trenches with them. No Ephesians 4 gifts working with him. Don't go out alone. Conferences won't give you what you need. Paul had Acts 19 when he called all the, the elders together in Miletus. Great moment, great teaching, great instruction. But brothers, sisters, forgive the, my Pentecostal moment. Uh, make sure that there is on the ground collaboration. You've got guys who know you. You've got guys who journey with you, guys who understand you, who are Ephesians 4 gifts. All right, five minutes. What on earth can I do in five minutes? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, no, no, it's not necessary now. Any questions? We can pause and then we'll dive into what I should have started with an hour ago. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Here are some of the things that we've experienced. Number one, people don't have an honest assessment of whether they're called to be church planters or not. It is pretty cool and vibey right now. You go to an exponential or go to a boot camp with Driscoll 
or whatever your kind of group has. And it's pretty cool to get wired up by it, you know? Um, you get pretty stoked and, and whatever, and, and you get a couple of people to agree with you and some churches to back you. But you're driven by the passion of the moment, not by the conviction of a calling. <coughs> I think church planters are so persuaded they burn their boats. They, they land on the foreign shores and they burn their boats, say, so we're here to stay. Very tender about being in New York on Sunday because a young South African couple arrived here 12 years ago with $200 in their pocket. That's it. Manhattan, two suitcases and a baby came to plant a church. It didn't always go well with them. She was the educated one. She had a job. What was she, uh, Nick? Occupational therapist or something. And, um, but they were absolutely persuaded God called them. I sat with them with Meryl and I and Derek and Kath weeping. So let me pull you out of Manhattan. Come to LA. Come and hang with us. We'll, we'll, we'll wrap you up. We'll put bandages around you and we'll send you out again. And they just sat there. We said, where can we go? God's called us. What, what, what are we supposed to do? He hasn't said we're done. But you're dying. We have nowhere to go. $200? When Tim Keller heard this, he, he said, who are you guys? Who comes to Manhattan with $200 and two suitcases and plants a church? People come with 100000 bucks to plant a church and still don't succeed. Well, I'm doing the handover on Sunday because he's going back to school to get his PhD or his master's. You have to be persuaded, and you have to be persuaded both internally, and if you're married, you're a wonderful lady with her, and those whom you love and trust. Not just the calling, but the timing of the calling. And the form of the calling. That is absolutely imperative. Secondly, I think that too many guys go in without an understanding of, we touched on it early on, but I want to say it again, their own divine calling. You know, it's so captivating to hear all these big name speakers get up. I was at a Long Beach. Uh, launch of Vision 360 the other day and I heard Rick Warren get up and it's very amazing and everything that they've done and I'm looking around at these church planters and nothing that they are doing on the ground connects with the fact that he's got 37,000 people and they've got 200 church plants, whatever, whatever the numbers were. You've got to be absolutely persuaded of your calling and you have to be absolutely persuaded of what God has called you to do. Where God has called you to go. Many guys go to context for whatever their reason is, but they don't connect into that world. You've got to go under God. I mean, isn't it amazing wherever Paul went? He said he went to the synagogue as was his custom. He went to his own. He went to people that he connected with. He went to people that he knew. Um, that's why I asked Matt. When I first met Matt, I thought, hmm, suburban, Thousand Oaks. He doesn't look, to me, he doesn't look like... Uh, suburban, big cars, big houses kind of guy. But he grew up here. Now that makes sense. Now I understand it. So knowing where God wants you to plant is absolutely imperative. And related to that, very insufficient number of churches do their homework. Uh, church planters. Know what the culture is. We'll talk a little more about this after the break. You have to know it. There's a guy, a couple, Nick and I know, they were in this first church planting school I ran in South Africa. Came home to Merrill the first night after meeting all the students. I said, 
Robin Bridget want to plant in Ulan Bator, Mongolia. That is about the uttermost as you can have. She said, well, what are they like? I said, he's an expert in grasses. Is he like kidding me? Do they know the language? No. They did a fabulous job in Ulan Bator. They just handed over. They're looking to go and plant in Turkey. The point we made early on about guys who've done it, go and do it again. They did an outstanding job because they invested themselves. They learned the language. They used to go out in the summer on horseback to go and evangelize the gypsies. They used to go on horseback for a week at a time, just a group of guys. Remember how cool that is? Jolly hard work. Horseback, build relationship, work the cattle or the animals, whatever they were, with them. In the winter, they used to go out in their Russian-made jeeps, and they'd have to warm the batteries up because it was like minus 60. And the only way they could get out was to actually, it was a whole lengthy process of heating the engine up before they actually went out. They knew God wanted them to go, and they totally dove into the culture. When they got into these, these rural villages, they would invariably arrive, be hugged, and then they would each be given a big chunk of horse fat and warm milk. That's just right there that it leaves my body. I'm sure before it enters, it exits, you know. But do you hear what I'm saying? They, 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 they not only believed with all their heart, but they vested themselves into the culture and engaged themselves fully into the culture and into the community. Um, let's stop there because there are some other things, but I think maybe you guys have heard enough and gals. What I would like to do now is just spend a little bit of time in the text because I think we can, we can miss some of the sweetness of what God wants to do with us today by, by rushing ahead too quickly. Um, let me just add this in brackets. Allow the Spirit of God to minister to you. Um, I don't know where you come from, obviously, and I don't want to be offensive, nor do I want to collide with you on, on theological positions that we are different in. But I can tell you this. That I love the working of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit touching people's lives. I, I do love that. I'm not a wild, rabid Pentecostal. I don't wave white hankies and say hallelujah, although sometimes I'd love my people to do that because that would really encourage me. Um, but uh, I, I do love it when God the Holy Spirit um, calls me out. I was preaching in a church in Pasadena two Sundays, three Sundays ago. And um, during the worship time, I saw a, a lady who was pregnant, small community, about 50 people, and um, I said to Meryl, I feel like we have to pray for them, her and her husband, a little preggy tummy, and Meryl says, oh no, babe, I don't think we should, so I said, why, she, I said, she says, she's lost the baby, so I said, you're kidding, lost the baby, but the little tummy's really pretty. And uh, so I lean across to the pastor, who is one of the guys we planted with, and I said to him, Terry, has, has she lost the baby? No, he said, she lost a baby in January. She is pregnant now. So Meryl and I had half of the story each. So when I get up to preach, I say, um, Nicole, Steve, I'd like you to come up. I said, I don't really have anything to pray over you. I just looked across you in the worship. I saw your little preggy tummy, and I felt like God just wanted to bless you, you know. She starts weeping. Steve starts weeping. They've been living in fear that they're going to lose this baby. You know, just happened in January. Could happen again. 
They were still trying to recover from the loss, the grief of a miscarriage. I didn't know any of this. So all that I'd do is I'd I'd ask Meryl to put her hands on Nicole's tummy. I put my hand on Meryl because obviously the tummy is a very private thing, especially when there's pregnancy involved. And we just started praying blessing over Nicole and Steve and the little baby. And then the presence of God came. There was no amazing prayer. I would love to tell you I had a vision or a dream or an angel came and joined us. Something really dramatic would have been so postmodern. It would have been so funky. But nothing really fancy happened except we prayed. And she came afterwards with tears. She said, you know, it was just so wonderful to know that God knew I was in the room. God called me up by name. And I love those moments. I love the struggles. I love it when God gives a word of knowledge, you know. You were standing in your kitchen this morning. And you just said, you know, Lord Jesus, do you even know I'm alive? Wow. Someone rushes forward and says, but that's me. I was, I, was, I was cleaning the coffee mugs. And I just looked up and I said, do you even know I'm here? I've got babies. I feel fat. I feel ugly. Sure, I'm sure my husband looks at other women. You, do you even know I'm here? God says, you know what, I'm going to stop the whole proceeding. And I'm just going to tell... Sarah, that I love her. Nicodemus, come down out the tree. I'm going to hang with you tonight. We're going to have a glass of wine together. We're just going to enjoy each other. God the Holy Spirit knows our stories. Now, I don't really mind what position you hold theologically. That's not my point. I'm not driving a theological agenda. But what I am saying to you personally and to the churches you minister and people need to know God knows they're there. People need that encounter. Just that sweet spot when he, God, the Holy Spirit, comes and just puts his hand on them. Sometimes a prophetic word or, a, or something really fancy, or even just the scripture read over them, is such an empowering moment. Never be flippant with those moments. Never just dismiss them. And as you lead your works, you be, your, your spiritual radar goes out more and more, and you pick up things for people. Don't dismiss it. Think, oh, well, it was the cereal I had or the pizza and popcorn last night at the movies. God the Holy Spirit speaks to you about the people that you're loving and leading. Listen, attune, pick it up, you know. And um, we've had all incredible stories, incredible stories. One of the church planters was telling us, now Nick, help me if I butcher the story, but it goes something like this. You hear so many of a guy who um, arrived, stumbled into this new little church plant. They were still meeting in a house. And he popped in. He said, I'm not staying, I'm not staying, I'm not staying, I'm walking, I'm leaving. And he was about to walk out, and they just loved him and hung out, and they had their meeting and whatever, and he stayed and he stayed and he stayed. The story was that he'd actually had a a pistol in his car. And he basically came to say goodbye to his mates. He was going to the forest to blow his brains out. And in the presence of God, and the presence of worship, and being loved, and God just ministering, he got wonderfully Saved. He's so funny because he's a bit of an old skateboarder stokey. So he's like a 50-year-old guy, like a 15-year-old, you know. And he bought himself this massive Bible. And when we go and minister there, he walks around behind us all the time making notes in his Bible. He's just so captivated by Jesus because one day he was on his way to kill himself. And a sweet, simple gathering of friends, the beginnings of a church plant, transformed his life. I think what would be good to go to now, uh, Matt, is just to speak a little bit about, um, let me read it here. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, one of the mistakes you make, we all make, is we are way too critical of ourselves. There is an incredible cloud of witnesses cheering us on. I used to run marathons and ran one ultramarathon, a 50 miler. And the most difficult part of the race was the stretches where we were so running out in the middle of nowhere that there was no one cheering us on. I had no illusions about how good or how bad I was. Finishing was enough for me. 50 miles in a day, it was about eight and a half hours worth of running, was long enough for me. It was the cheering on. It was Meryl pushing through the crowd. Yoo-hoo! As I plodded my way in desperateness. Banana in hand, drink in hand. Come on, babe, can I massage your muscles? Yeah, I'm hurting. Where are you hurting? Everywhere. Where should I massage you? Everywhere. Can I stop? No, you can't. I hate you. Yes, you do hate me. You know, off you go again, till another 10 miles further down the road. Can I stop? No, you can't. Where are you hurting? Everywhere. Can I massage you? Yes, where? Everywhere. There's a banana, yes, and off you go again. There's such a great cloud of witnesses cheering us on. Be less critical of yourselves. Be, be, be less harsh on yourself. One of the things I've learned in 27 years of leading the churches is that most of our Sundays are another brick in the wall Sunday. With all due respects to Pink Floyd, it's just another brick in the wall. You know, it's not life-changing. You're not hanging another chandelier. You're not putting another window. What do you call those windows? A stained glass window. Isn't it fancy? It's just another brick in the wall. There was worship and the word was preached and people had coffee and they went home and the hall was cleared and it was another brick in the wall. And we beat ourselves up because of another brick in the wall. But you know what? The buildings of the world are there because someone put another brick on another brick. Not everyone's the fancy carpenter. You rarely find people going, those great, just being in England now, you know, these big buildings that are like, the one church just celebrated their 500th year. Amazing thing is I've never seen anyone stand there and say, these bricks, they're amazing. Have you noticed these bricks? Have you, have you noticed that the distance, the cement between the bricks is just 500? No one ever says that. And yet most of what we do in church planning is another brick in the wall. It's another counseling. It's another prayer. It's another sermon. In the simplicity of its repetition, the building goes up. We want the glamorous and the spectacular. We want to hit a home run every time we preach. We want the worship to be you too every time there's worship. We, we want it to be this extravagant show. We want lights and smoke machines and big offerings. And most of what we do is another brick in the wall. That's why we need the great cloud of witnesses, that they are the ones cheering us on. Say, come on, bro. Come on, bro. We have the highlighted stories of these great biographers telling us of what Martin Luther did and John Wesley did and the rest of the crew. But the reality is a book is not a, a life. And most of what they did was another brick in the wall. It was another uh, horseback ride. It was another meeting. It was another uncomfortable bed with another rock-hard pillow. And John Wesley would go home and his wife used to beat him up. And I think that's why he developed an itinerary ministry so he could get away from her. And change the world rather than go home and face his wife, you know. Married badly. Should have married the love of his life in America. Anyway, that's not going to change your life. But are you with me? 
We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. There are more who are egging us on than are critical of us. There are more who are applauding us than destroying us. And if I can empower you with anything today, let that be one of the truths that you marinate in. When I finish preaching, leading me, I get into my car and I say, Father, how have I done? And that is the most important moment of my Sunday. I need to know how I handled his girl. I need to know if he was happy with the way I touched his bride. I need to know. Of course, I want Meryl to say, babe, that was amazing. She really does. She, but she loves me. But I want to hear my father say, son, you did good. Not many words, not big words, not fancy stories. Boy, did everyone laugh today. No, 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 just well done. You, you did good with my girl. All right, such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which, which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Um, you know what I'd love to do here is just talk a little bit about the weights that we carry. Um, that word, let me just get the right Greek word so I don't mess up, onkom, O-N, how do you pronounce it, Nick? O-N-K-O-M. I think in classic literature, one of the commentators I read said it's the excessive physical weight or burdensome, burdensome load. These are some of the things that are weights, which does come back to the question you asked, and that's why I want to head into that direction. Guys and girls, the weights that we carry include, number one, an identity that's attached to performance. Please throw that off early. There are way too many teachers my age who still preacher, teachers, worship leaders, whatever, who still attach way too much attention to their performance. There are times you're going to be funny and there are times you're going to be boring. Once in my years of ministry, I stopped in the middle of a message and I said, this is not going anywhere. And everyone nodded like this. And I said, we have one of two options. I either continue, and their eyes got bigger, or we just put it down to experience. We all have a good laugh. I say amen, and we go home for lunch. <laughs> Everyone agreed with that, so we stopped the meeting. It was a serious lemon. It wasn't even worth using with the corona. It was a bad <laughs> message. If after digging for gold for a while, if you haven't found it, just stop. Just be honest with people. Say, you know, this really sucked today. And you know, they will love your honesty, and they'll be happy, and they can go to lunch early. Don't have your identity attached to your performance, because you'll perform well, and you will perform badly. And if you are attached to your performance, you will be a nightmare to live with. Your wife will hate you. Your kids will hate you. You walk around with a... a, a, a whatever with a sore head. What is the expression? A bull with a sore head, whatever the case may be. Please, don't do that. Hear the sweet voice of your heavenly Father speak to you. Once I heard God really rebuke me. I mean, I got in the car and I felt like God pinned me to the wall. He said, that is my bride. I mean, I was ranting and raving. I was this young, wild, I was going to show them. 
And God just said to me quite simply, never speak to my girl that way ever again. It was scary. I mean, I knew this was a diff- I believe in grace, but this was not about grace. This was about his girl. Please don't attach your identity to your performance. Your identity is who you are. I'm 27, I've been in ministry 27 years. I am 53. I've led two churches. Just handed them over into a space. I have no role. I have no job. I joke with Meryl and say I'm unemployed. Rock Arbor very kindly has given me an office. I had to chuckle to myself because they're very kind. They don't have to give me anything because I do a lot of what I do out of there. So I go to this little office in the corner of the new building, you know. And I had the cool office before. You know the one with the two windows? You know the one with the big couches? And it wasn't very fancy because I'm a humble guy. But it was a little bit fancy. And now I have two little desks like this. And I just sat there and I smiled. I think, I think God was laughing hysterically. I think he watched my reaction as I walked in. And I said, this is your office. And uh, I did. I just felt the father laugh. All right, what do you think? No couch. No, there's no room for one. No telephone. Yeah, maybe you'll get one later. See, if you attach your identity performance, you will be enslaved for your whole ministry career. But if you find your identity in honestly in who you are in Him, it makes your journey so much easier. Make sense? That's a weight we carry that will trip us up. That's the picture. You know that. You've preached from this text probably. But as church planters and church leaders, that will stumble you. Because you will surround yourself with people who will say what you need to hear. Rather than people who love you enough to invest honestly. You know what? That really wasn't a good message. It's one of the great things I've learned about Rock Harbor. They they critique their Sunday meeting in a spirit of celebration and honor. Thank you, that was good. Now let's talk. So, don't do that, guys and girls. Ladies, it's even more difficult for you if your man's the preacher. Because you up there with him, and there's nothing you can do about what he's saying. There's nothing you can do. You're going down with him, baby. You are going down. And Anna Merrill is quiet. I wish you met her. She's, 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 she's happier at the back. She's serving, loving. She'll probably have that baby on her hip. At the back, that's where she's happiest, and I'm up front, and I'm comfortable up front. And, and we, on those things, we, it's like we were on two different tracks. But my point is this never put your identity to a performance. What's the statistic? Something like 89% of America's pastors' wives wish their husbands were not in the ministry. That's a very high statistic. Would you agree? Because we attach. Too much leverage to our performance. Please, from the bottom of my heart, don't perform. And certainly don't attach your identity to it. All right. Number two, artificial measure of success. What's the weight we carry? An artificial measure of success is the number of people. Can I empower you to get away from that? Don't worry. Don't make that the yardstick. Jesus, by your definition, was the greatest disaster on the planet. He left 11. Started with 12. That's a pretty high ratio of loss. Please, it's not an issue. I hate people who come to church late, don't you? Because it does my ego so much harm. 
meeting starts and there's about 10% of the people and it used to drive me crazy. And I made a decision, all right, Lord, I'm going to step in the front. I'm going to worship you by example and I'm going to lift my hands and I'm going to worship with all of my might and I'm not going to look at the back to see who's here and who's not here because it was freaking me out. It wasn't a good vibe. So don't attribute success, sex, well, that's also. Don't attribute sex to, to the number of people. Uh, church planters that will kill you. There are that. We, we, one of our church planters planted in North Carolina on the Outer Banks. He went to five friends. They are running at what now, Nick? About 600 or something. In two years. How cool is that? I mean, when he arrives, he does walk with a little bit of a, you know, he's got a little bit of a, a I'm the man, you know. He's, and you know what he is? Jolly well, 600 people in two years in the Outer Banks, North Carolina. For heaven's sake, there's something there. But he's no more successful than the guy who is eking out an existence, fighting for some reality in some other place or context. My appeal to you is don't measure yourself by the number of bottoms in chairs. That's not a sign of divine health nor a sign of divine success. It's a weight you carry and it's a pressure that comes upon you that is very Difficult, very hard to bear. Number three, what are some of the things that we as, as church planters and church leaders uh, find ourselves encrouched or uh, whatever by? Um, be honest, we discussed it earlier. I wrote in my notes the trauma of the orchestra. Don't try and be all the instruments. Don't try to be all the instruments. Be comfortable with who you are. As um, there's, a, there's, a, there's an English uh, violinist and orchestra conductor called Nigel Kennedy. He's a unique guy. He can conduct a full orchestra while he's playing his violin. Well, needless to say, he's selling the CDs. He's the stud. He's on TV because that's not what your average person does. Be comfortable in who you are, the role you play. And can I say this, brothers and sisters, please, if you're a good 20-minute preacher, preach for 20 minutes. Please, don't slaughter the poor congregation with your endless expose of mindless meanderings. Just, I'm good for 20 minutes. Preach jolly well. The church we handed over in South Africa was 1,000. The guy I handed over to was a 28-year-old businessman. He grew it to 3,000. He is a 20-minute preacher. I think that's why his church grows. He preached for 20 minutes. I don't know, maybe. I don't know if there's a, if there's a connection. He'd get up. He would talk, he'd walk amongst the congregation, very prophetic, love on people, prophesy over people, minister to people, and he was done. He was done. Don't wax lyrical. If you're a 20 minute, to be honest, I'm a 20 minute. That's what I'm good at, and I'm going to preach 20 minutes, and I'm going to give it my all, and then I'm done. The trauma of the orchestra, don't be under pressure to be, especially this church plant we were visiting in, in, in London, and I felt so sorry. This guy was leading the worship with his wife. Then he was preaching. Then he made the announcements. And then afterwards, he was stacking all the chairs together. And I said to the crew with me, come on, let's clear the decks. We stacked the stuff. We packed it away. It felt like the good old days, you know? It felt so cool to just kind of jump in and serve in that context. But the trauma of pressure of being the orchestra, don't do it. Don't do it. Be comfortable with who you are and what you can achieve. And if you haven't got a good musician, a song is enough. This stuff of imitating some other church that has an hour's worship, I go there and I listen to it. I was like, please don't do that. That worship team, not you, bro, I loved you. 
That worship team, you know, they really are good for two songs. Now, I went to a conference, and they sang three fast ones, and then a slow one, and then we meditated, and we responded. No, 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 erase, rub it out, rub it out. Out it goes. You know what? You are really good for two songs. Just give us two. Two's good, you know? Three's a crowd, two's a crowd. Two is really good. Because you know what you can do if they're really bad is afterwards... While they're really bad, is when you break bread. Because no one's listening. <laughs> Everyone's breaking bread and praying for each other. Deconstruct your meeting so no one knows how bad they really are. I'm being honest, I'm not being funny. Because you go into these meetings and the people are being driven ballistic by someone who's got an E minor, A minor thing going, and, and every song is sung, and, and, and it's really not that good. Just be honest. You know what? This little church plan of ours, we really are a 45-minute gig. We're going to give you 45 minutes. The best that we got, we're going to hit it out the park, and we're going to go home, and everyone's going to be really happy. Don't try and be an hour-and-a-half gig when you're 45 minutes. That's what it is. The weight that we carry. Um, the emotion from one message. I said that. Brick in the wall thing. Live comfortably. One message, at a, one piece at a time. Marital conflict. Let me talk a little bit about, should I get to marital conflict? I'll, I'll get back to that. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. Absence of transparency. Does someone know what's knowable about you guys? I mean, does someone know what's knowable about you? Because if they don't, the cracks are going to show. The pressure down upon you, it's going to show because nothing reveals pressure like church planting. Because it's all. You can go to the office and the office doesn't know about your family. The office doesn't know about your kids. Pressure, pressure, pressure there. But they don't see this. The office doesn't know what car you drive. They don't look to see what your schools your kids go to. The office does not give you the pressure that that gives you. Ministry is everything. It's your all. I love that about it. I, I, I absolutely love that about it, that it's just one of me. It's just Meryl and Chris and our three kids, and we do life, and this is the way we do life, and come and join us. We're doing life together. And, and can I be cheeky and say, if you don't want people around your dining room table, please don't plant a church, because you're going to plant a business. Have people around your dining room table. Let your kids feel like they're part of the story. One of my precious all-time memories was hosting an international event in, uh, when we were still down there, leading the church down there, we had a, we had a guy from Russia, a couple from uh, Australia, a couple from South Africa, a couple from Americans, and whatever. There was, uh, we had a big table because we wanted lots of people to sit around it. And Meryl and I and the girls were serving, and uh, this Russian was uh, picked up a tomato, and he said, this, forgive my very bad Russian, German, Jewish, throwing a bit of Indian accent, this is not a tomato. In Russia, we have tomatoes. This is not this. No, got no taste. There's nothing. At the... Now, I'm at the corner of my eye. I see my daughters, and they're standing like Because they're about 11 and 13. Their eyes are this big. This guy talks about tomatoes. And I thought, God, aren't you good? We could have gone to a restaurant. They said, all right, girls, time for your bed. Now, they watch this nations. And the only thing we have in common is Jesus. We don't even like the same tomatoes. There's nothing we like that's the same. There's nothing in this room except Jesus. And you know what? My kids are part of the journey. 
don't fall into the trap. I don't want to preach to kids, so I'll keep my kids away from the ministry. Don't fall into the trap that my missus will have her own gig and she's going to do her own thing out there. And the ministry is what dad does. They will hate the ministry. It's one team. It's Chris and Merrill, Chris and Merrill and the kids, and it's one team, and it's what we do together. You don't have to agree with me, but let me be passionate for just a moment. It's what I believe from the bottom of my heart. My kids didn't know about preacher kids till they moved to America, and people said, oh, you're pre-PK. I said, what's a PK, Dad? Preacher kid. What does that mean? Is that like a cool thing? Not really. Why? Well, why don't people like the ministry? Well, actually, girls, let me tell you. You're joking, Dad. Is that what people think? We love it. We love it, all the people in our home and the different accents and people coming to stay with us and we've got to give up our rooms and we've got to stay somewhere else. Where? Why do we always have to stay in hotels? Can't we just hang out in people's homes and eat at their dining room table? And I had um, Jeff van der Stolt and Alan Hurst around the other night. We, we did an event and Terry Virgo, whom you won't know. And we all sat around the table and we were talking and Meryl made lots of food and we were celebrating together and I'm sorry we enjoy some wine but, but we did ask the Lord to take the alcohol out. I don't think he succeeded. It's a bit of a, it was a non-miracle non but, but we did try. We tried to take the alcohol out and um, we just sat there. We spoke for hours and my kids are involved and Jeff turns to my daughter Dana and he says, Dana, what was it like growing up in a home? Now, they're sitting at the far end but I can watch this. What was it like growing up and home with your dad and mom in the ministry and they traveled and they were away a lot? What was it like? Oh, I loved it, she said. Why, why did you love it? Because we felt like we as a family were giving And then she goes off and there they're chatting away. Are you with me? When we make ministry the professional thing that dad does, your wife will hate it and your kids will hate it. When the ministry is what dad and mom does, the kids will hate it because it always takes mom and dad away from them. But if it's what we do, it's the journey we're in. And there's the pain and the privilege of it. Please hear me. There's the pain and the privilege of it. And I have the pain and privilege to talk with my kids often. Tender moment. I told you my daughter got married really young. And we were in South Africa, our last kind of vacation together before she got married. One of the churches called me up and said, Chris, we want to send you and your kids to a private game park. Very fancy. So the, my son was too young, he was too small because you're in open land cruises. So uh, as we get to the gates, I pulled over and I said, girls, before we go, and I've got a story to tell you. I said, you know, dad's always told you about the pain and privilege of ministry. I said, you know, there are times that mom and I have had to travel and be around, be away together because Mary and I, 90% of the time we travel together. And nodded their heads, and I said, well, I want to tell you that this church, and I told them which it is, have paid for this. And the four of us sat there, and we just wept together. And for three days, we were in exotic settings, high-end, private game park. Lions walking alongside us as we had our own guide to take us around. My one daughter turned 16 during that time, and they stopped in the middle of a forest, and there were little candles they, they, they took, as we arrived there, the, the land cruisers dropped us off, and we went through, and they took us in the middle of the forest. They set up some tables and some candles, and we sat there, and we had dinner. And you know the way the Africans can sing? It's very rousing. They sang, and then they came out and sang happy birthday to my daughter and brought her a big cake. 
See, girls, this is the privilege. But has there been the pain? Absolutely. I was in Delhi when my daughter swam in her first swim meet, and she won. I said, hey, Nas, how did it go, baby? Dad, I won, I won. And uh, Mom and I are so delighted. We put the phone down, we wept, and we wept. I remember lying on a smelly, dirty Delhi carpet, weeping, because I never saw my daughter swim in a swim meet. That's the pain. But it's what we do as a family. It's not what Dad does. It's not what Dad and Mom do. It's what we do as a family. Does it make sense to you? If we get these things wrong, guys and girls, somewhere it will leak. Our wives will hate the ministry. The only part that they get of us is a grumpy us when I've preached badly. When someone sends a rude email or someone says something about the new dress they had or the jewelry that she wore on Sunday or the fact that the kids were a little, were a little more noisy than normal. That's the only association she has because we've done it badly. Do it together. Meryl was 21 when we planted. She was at college. She was a university student. We had never clue what we were doing. And I know a picture of the little apartment we had in Durban. And we looked at each other and we sat down together and we said, God's called us to ministry. And we said, we'll do it together. I don't know what it looks like. We didn't. We only had a kind of a Methodisty background. I remember my, my, my amazing little wife said, you know, babe, I guess that means we'll never have nice clothing. And maybe. And we'll probably never own our own home. Probably. You know that our kids will kind of have to have hand-me-downs. I suppose. We're in. We're in together. It's not possible if we don't engage with that level of affection and collaboration and partnership. Now I know that there are times when the missus has to go and work, so please, I'm not casting judgment on anyone. I'm trying to create a picture that's something you can hold on to and something that's desirable for you. Do it together. Draw your kids into the story together. My son goes to a school. I'm sorry to talk about us, but hopefully it helps a little bit. I've just put my son into Mariner's Christian School in Costa Mesa, and we live in Brea. Every morning I wake him up, he stumbles into the car. We've got a half an hour to 45-minute commute. And you know why I take him there? So he can travel with us. Because the school let me. So I wanted a school where I can pull him out any time I want. Because I want him to be comfortable with airports, foreign beds, foreign accents, foreign kinds of foods. I don't want him to be a hamburger junkie. Oh boy, you eat what is set before you. And Dad, if I don't like it, no, you eat what is set before you. Well, if we're going to reach the nations, we've got to be able to eat their food. We've got to talk to them. Does it make sense? Marriage and ministry is a very remarkable collaboration. It's an incredible gift that God gives us. It's not there to destroy our marriage. It's not there to alienate us. It's there for us to do together. I'm going to pause there for a moment. I want to pray. I want to pray for you. I don't know if we'll pray individually, but I certainly want to pray for you as a group that God will just give you some insight, unroll, unfold, um, whether you're single or married, that God will give you a picture of what marriage, ministry, church planting can be like.
such wonderful men and women in this room. Such a wonderful heart for you. On the one hand, wanting to be fully and completely obedient to your will and ways. And on the other hand, wanting to have a really cool marriage. Wanting to have a really cool partnership. Father, those are not mutually exclusive. It's not like we can have one or the other. They really are wondrous components of unity. I know that there's no way I can do what you've called me to do without Meryl and I together on the same page, marching by the same rhythm of grace, wildly in love with you and wildly in love with each other. So I'm asking right now that you would soften hearts where hearts have already gotten a little hard in disappointment and anger. Let forgiveness creep in to where our spouses have just not understood from our vista. Would you come and touch those wounds that already are simmering? We don't always know if we should be honest about those things. This wonderfully tender moment of quiet reflection. Would you realign us like the chiropractor gets hold of our back and realigns us? Would you realign our thoughts? These are not issues of sin, but they weights that trip us up. Do you mind if I just chat a little more about this? I am trying to read which way to go. Nothing this morning has gone according to schedule anyway, so why ruin a good chaos with order, you know? Let me talk a little bit about your sex life, your intimate life. I'm not going to be embarrassing. As I left this morning, Meryl hugged me and she said, Now, baby, if you're in doubt, be conservative. So this is my best effort at conservativeness. All right? If we make our spouse and our marriage one of our highest values, you are going to love the ministry. But your girl has to know you have no other mistress. And I'm not talking about another woman. I'm talking about another bride. I look into the eyes of pastors' wives. And I will know by looking into those eyes whether she is loved or not. Or whether she feels she's always combating for the romantic affections of her man. It is interesting that God gave Adam Eve before God gave Adam an assignment. Because I think we're supposed to enjoy each other. And I think what happens is that we labor so long and hard and the ministry is so emotionally laden with expenditure. We're giving so much away that we end up giving our spouses what's left. 
Guys and gals, we've got to give our spouses the best. Outside of God, I love waking up in the morning. I wake up very early. I go through to my study. I make my espresso. I have a banana and I have my water and I sit with, with the scriptures and I just enjoy being his boy. I enjoy being with my heavenly father. It's not my ministry time. It's not Chris the preacher, the teacher, the leader. It's Chris the son who sits in his father's presence and just enjoys him. And I write in my journal, what about this? Just questions that I have. And then I read the text and I marinate in the text and he refreshes me. And it's not sermon preparation. It's not reading the text I'm going to preach on. It's just simply marinating in his goodness. Secondly, every day there has to be invested time with your lady or your man. There has to be. Every day there has to be that time when you process. And Meryl and I have become very verbal. I'm very verbal. Meryl wasn't. She's the more internalizer. I'm the more ventilator. I speak about it. But this I know, that I need time with Meryl every day. And if two or three days go by without that time, we begin to get very scratchy with each other. Meryl needs to know that she is, outside of God, my number one. I nearly lost my marriage. That's why I'm so passionate about this. I was 30 years old. I had two kids, two daughters. The ministry was starting to bump. I was starting to get some profile in South Africa, some national recognition, speaking at events. I was the young, emerging guy. And um, I was losing my wife. And how could she fight the ministry? It's like fighting God. So she felt every time she said, well, babe, can we just have some time? Yeah, but so-and-so really needs to see me. What I'm really saying is I'm so jolly ambitious. I'm going to see everyone I'm going to see to promote my ministry. But I don't say it like that because it's too raw and naked and honest. So I'd say things like, you know, these are sheep and we've got to love them. And I use all the nice language because the honest language is too stark. And the enemy watched this with interest. And I went on a military camp. It was part of the South African story. I went on a captain's course. And I was sitting at a restaurant one night with a mate. And we started chatting to two young college students. And by the grace of God, I never slept with her. By the grace of God. I can't tell you why not. I can just tell you God prevented it. Obviously, I came back. I told Meryl. I told the men I'm accountable to. That's why I can tell the story publicly. But it was the most horrific moment to think that I was about to forfeit everything. And the bottom line was that I had a mistress, and her name was the church. And she was a very appealing mistress. She didn't demand much. When your church grows, it doesn't demand much. It just feeds your ego. And my, my little wife with the two kids, sometimes in her pajamas till noon, Diapers and bay, you know the whole story. I don't have to describe it all to you. And here I'm around all these foxy people, and I come home, and my gorgeous wife's, you know, cooking and cleaning, and it's not very sexy. But it was a hard, hard lesson. Mary and I had to have some long, hard, painful, tear filled conversations because I couldn't see it initially. I was about the king's business. And she better just submit because I've got a verse for her if she doesn't. And God began to speak to me and it started on the golf course. 
was teeing off with some mates. God said to me, where are, where are you? I'm like, yo, see me. It's like the blind man, what do you want? You know. He said, you should be at home with your wife. Four hours with your mates, four hours you don't give them. I put my golf clubs away for five years. And then God spoke to me about letting Meryl know she is the most important person in my life. And it started with a hard thing because there was a knock at the door one night. Kids were asleep. We were just mellowing out, having our, finishing up our meal. There was a knock at the door and a young guy came to the door and he said to me, Hey, Chris, how you doing, man? I can I see you? I said, no, no, I'm busy. He said, who are you busy with? With Meryl. And he said, well, then I can come in. And as he came in, I put my hand across the doorway like this, and he walked into my arm, and he stepped back. He said, what do you mean? I said, bro, you didn't hear me, did you? I'm busy with my wife. You can call me tomorrow if you want to set up some time for me. Well, that guy spun, but that night I saved my marriage. Because Meryl then comes out, Chris, Chris, you can see him. You can say, no, 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 no. Tonight, I've got to make a decision that you are the most important person in my life. 31 years of marriage on Tuesday. We love each other, and we love the Lord, and we love the church. But she had to know there was no greater affection in my life than her. Not only serving her, I'm talking about her. Taking a moment to be intoxicated by her, to be awed by her, to know that my eyes are on her, to know that my emotional investment is on her. I think it's an area of enormous fragility in ministry because by default we end up giving our wives the least and our kids less. I don't believe in a hierarchy of priorities. I think priorities is more like a clock. That as it ticks, we invest ourselves fully and completely with that. So my kids know the date with dad. My little girls were small. I still have it with them, but my girls were small. There would be the date with dad time. And we'd do Cinderella, and I'd be the ugly stepsister, and they would be Cinderella. don't know why I was never Prince Charming. I never quite got that role, you know. And we'd eat the cake, the mud cakes. But when I was with them, there was no interruption. In Singapore, they have what they call the McDonald's dads. Because the men work such incredibly long hours that they give no time to their kids. So on a Saturday morning, the dads take the kids to McDonald's. But the dads spent the whole time on the cell phone. The McDonald's dads. See, when you're on date with your kid, the phone's off. When you're on date with your wife, the phone's off, brothers. You don't sit at that cool foxy restaurant and you're answering the phone. The phone is off. Because otherwise there's always someone who's more important than she is. Investment into your marriage is, I think, one of God's great treasures for us. Invest, invest, invest. Put in. Be generous with your wives, brothers. Be generous with them. Let them know you love spoiling them. I'm not a big um, 
uh, big events kind of guy. In other words, I, Meryl and I don't buy each other Christmas gifts. I'm not into that. So the only time I buy you a gift is when it's the official time. I'm really disinterested in that. I keep buying this. I want her to continuously be surprised. It's like, when's my next gift coming? Not January the 1st, 0101, it's time, you know. You're stressing after Christmas. I do buy a birthday gift. Stressing after Christmas, get to the Christmas sales, go and get her something. No, no, no. It's an ongoing act of kindness, of generosity. Any of this make sense to you? I hope so. We expect our wives to perform in bed. We want them to be foxy and extravagant and unabated and unreserved and generous. But, but every act we have could be to shrink her, to minimize her, to speak ill of her. The more you, you invest and expand your wife like a flower, the more you, you breathe over her and love her and are tender with her, and in, I, I love irritating Meryl in the kitchen because I wait till she's cooking and then I'm going to put my arms around her and kiss her in her neck and I know she's irritated with me but it's like the coolest irritation possible because she knows I'm intoxicated with her. I always speak of her unique smell. I say, babe, I don't know of another person who smells like Meryl. I, you're, and of course it's, oh, Chris, you know, come on. But, but it's, I'm captivated by her. Does it make sense to you guys? Invest into your marriage. Make it a daily thing. A phone call. A note. An email. A gift. Every day is a moment worth investing. Every day is an opportunity to just let your wife know she is the full treasure in your eyes. And then when you have opportunities to make love, um, be kind. I mean, I don't want to be awkward or embarrass anyone. I'm not embarrassed at all. I, I think this is one of the most wonderful things, God. We've made it embarrassing because we've made it dirty. If it wasn't dirty, we'd love to talk about it. But, but the point I'm wanting to make without embarrassing the ladies or making anyone feel awkward is I think the acts of generosity this side of the bedroom will make the acts of extravagance that side of the bedroom so much easier. Whatever we invest in, this bookend will produce tenderness and extravagant that book in throw the TV away at least for a day or a week and find things to talk about turn the lights off, turn some candles on play some music cook some food and if you can't cook a food, put piece of bread and a toaster and put peanut butter or Nutella or something on it. You know, desperate times require desperate measures, but let there be some act of extravagance towards her. And thank her. Ministry is tough. It, it, it is tough because it's, it's very much living in a fishbowl. That's not bad because people want an example. People want to know. I've had people come and say, Chris, can I just come and sit at your, your dining room table? I don't want you to talk to me. I just, I've never had a mom and a dad who love each other who sit together. And what do you do? What's normal for you? Well, what's normal? How do you, how do you do normal? So it's not a bad thing that you're in a fishbowl because people want a working example. So what do you do on a date with dad? Is it like awkward? 
Well, what do you and your daughter talk about? Well, do you want me to tell you what she's like when she's six? When I go with my 24-year-old daughter in Perth, Australia, and we go to this cool, foxy, little, funky coffee shop, and, and she tells me she looks beautiful, and everyone thinks like I'm a sugar daddy. You know, I've got this cool little chick on my arm, and they're like, oh, who's that grumpy grandpa? You know, and it's, it's, it's this, I love that notion because they still want the date with dad. People want to see where there's God life. Take it on the chin. Don't know why I'm thinking of this story. Forgive me, because it's a. It was a deacon couple in the church we led in South Africa, and they had some friends around for dinner. And while the wife was rushing around and clearing the table and feeding the people, she she bled off. She farted. She. And her husband instantly said, oh, "I'm sorry." He took it on the chin. Isn't that cool? Come on, wives. How many of you think that, that that's like serious points right there? I mean, that bed tonight is going to be squeaking flat out. Because <laughs> he took it on the chin. It wasn't like, oh, you know, my wife. You know, she always does this. You know? No, no, no. It's like, oh, sorry, guys. Excuse me. That was embarrassing. I just think what an incredible picture of affection and love for a guy who just reaches out, covers, in a good sense, covers his wife's nakedness and just takes the hit for her. I think it's lunchtime, but I want to finish praying. That was my effort of praying, which was very disastrous. So do you mind? Spirit of grace. Spirit who comes and puts balm over troubled waters writes wrong perceptions and heals broken hearts. Spirit of grace who comes and offers mercy, forgiveness, and new life. just feel so honored to be in this room full of these young marriages and new babies. And What an exciting time. The future lies before these precious men and women and kids. And what a great opportunity to set an extravagant path, a path of bigness. Not a path that shrinks, but an expansive path. Thank you for these women who are standing by their man. Look them in the eye and say, I believe you. I believe in you. I'm in this with you. Would you come now, Holy Spirit, and just... um, Well, we've been hard on ourselves and we've carried such difficulty, the challenges of the ministry, and and where we've shrunk ourselves, where we've closed the closet doors of our soul because they've been bruised once too often. Can we trust you with our heart? Can we give you the key to our soul and just say, unlock it? And can you put your hands over our heart? For that person in the room here today, Lord, who who's been thinking, maybe I married the wrong person, husband or wife. Maybe, maybe I rusted just a little bit. Well, you are remarkable because you can teach us to love with such width and breadth and such extravagance because you love with perfection. 
where the enemy comes to nurture those questions. Maybe I shouldn't have married that person. You come, Lord, with the love that is so sublime that transforms our souls so dramatically. Thank you for our spouses. Thank you. Why on earth would they want to be married to me? I'm sure we ask ourselves. Now, I thought it would be good for us just to have a moment of Q&A. Uh, Nick and I are going to leave at 2. He's got a meeting to get to, and I've got to go and pack. I'm off to New York in the morning. So, um, But I thought, you know, there's so many ways one can go, but a time like this, they're rare. They're not often enough for us, and I certainly don't have all the answers, but, um, hey, someone here may have a better answer than I attempt. But are there any things that are, are scratching with you that could be marital? personal, devotional, they could be familial, they could be church plant, uh, I think there's a lot of stuff out there in that regard, but um, anything I can help with? Should I? Okay, great question. For the sake of the tape, uh, core group, core group selection, uh, who, what, where, how does one use discernment? Here are a few things. Now, I'd love to say they're all clearly biblical, some aren't, some are just purely observation over a period of time. Um, I think this is what we counsel the guys who go out to plant. Number one, people don't always know their motive for wanting to join you. For example, you come out of a fairly large church. One way or another, the announcement is made that you're planting. Joe Bloggs, who never gets a gig in the worship team, who believes he's got a great future, him, Matt Redman, and Tim Hughes, and Louis Giglio, and they all same. So now he, what he can't get there, he's going to look to you for. Someone's got a great desire to preach, but hasn't get, get opportunity. My point being obvious, that um, you invariably find people who don't know what their motives are. Some are blatant and bland. It's mercenary. I'm going to join you so that my gift can get an opportunity. Some don't know their own hearts. So my counsel, our counsel in, in the churches we journey with include, understand so you don't get personally butchered. There are people who are scaffolding. They are remarkable at coming into church plants, serve there for a year or two, and then they will leave you. It's like putting up a building. You need the scaffolding, but the scaffolding is not the building. So many church plants get planters get butchered because they say, but the person said, I'm for you and I'm with you and I'm here to lift up your arms. And look at this, two years later, they leave me. Well, they're just scaffolding. We need them. We can't put our chairs and do the sound gear or even worship without them. But we don't personalize it when they leave. Um, Every church plant that I know of has scaffolding people. And if you value them as such, you can enjoy them. If they leave you and you get all grumpy, then you're never going to enjoy the people for who they are. I remember saying to my kids, you know, there are those that friendships that you will do life with. You will get old with. You will keep in touch with. And whatever in 20 years' time Facebook looks like, you know. (laughs) And all the way through, you've got kind of the friend that you will do this year with and the friend that you have tonight with. In which you can have a lot of fun, but don't lean on this person. They're going to be here with you forever. 
And because all my kids have, have had that pain. You know, this person who's new best friend. I always say to my kids, look over a person's shoulder. If they've always got new best friends, uh, you are their new best friend, which is probably all of tonight and the popcorn, you know. And that's true in the life of the church. Lean over people's shoulders. You know an enormous amount by their story. And if they move from church to church, that's probably what they're going to do for you. Don't write them off. But they may be scaffolding dwellers. Number two. Now, I know this is very un-American. Because most of the American counseling of church planting is set up your board ahead of time, choose your leaders, whatever the case may be. Unequivocally, that's a disaster. I do not know of a context in which it's worked. Because people who come to join you aren't necessarily those who are going to be catalytic leadership into the future. What we encourage church planters to do is don't identify or choose any leaders for the first year. Because almost every church plant has to undo that a year and a half into it. Um, For a number of reasons that aren't important. So we encourage them, don't choose or appoint leaders for the first year. Enjoy them. Get input. Get perspective. You can have informal coffee conversations. Hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? But don't put them into leadership because then you're going to have to take them out of leadership. A year in, you know who's got your heart. You know who's got the DNA. You know who has got the eyes for where you believe God's taking that community. You know that. And oftentimes it's not with those who start out with you. Because there are many things that are involved, and I don't want to do a leadership training exercise here, but there are things like sacrifice and similar heartedness and common vision and a gospel-centered essence and um, the skill set needed and the quality of marriage. Quick little story. Leaders produce after their own kind. You know that it's Genesis 1 principle. Once in 27 years of ministry, I have someone come to me and say, New, new couple to the church, can I meet with you? I said, sure. Grabbed a coffee and they said, uh, he said to me, so what's your marriage like? It's interesting, told him. What are your kids like? Do they love the Lord? Do they come to church? Are they grumpy? You know, told him. Asked me, what's my finances like? Not how much money do I have in the bank, but are you in debt? So after about half an hour, 40 minutes, I said, it's interesting. No one's ever asked me these questions before. Why have you? He said, because we will become like you are. Each will produce after their own kind. And I want to be in a church where marriage is valued because your marriage is strong. Where children are part of the team because your children are. Because you, because people are out of debt because you are. When you appoint your leaders, the church will become like they are. That's why you appoint them reluctantly. That's why it's good also, Josh, to have external voices in to be catalytic in that first year. Two to three of them who love you, who know you, who are in your story, who understand what you're trying to do, and who provide counsel for that first year, year and a half, that you don't have other leaders. Otherwise, it's just the two of you, and that's too great a weight to bear. You never become lovers because you're always co-leading the church. So it's good to have other voices in. Um, I'm sorry I'm using too many words again, but Meryl says I use too many words. It's my wife's counsel. So... I think it's the scaffolding ingredient. It's the first year because you have to find out who the people are. And then I think um, um, don't recruit. They'll find you. They'll find you. 
Um, it's, it's a remarkable thing. It doesn't mean if someone asks you questions, you, you don't engage them. But just by conversations and word of mouth, people will find you. And those are the, generally the healthiest relationships. When you go around like a salesman, you know, have you read my booklet and have you seen my flyer and have you been to my website? It's never out of conviction of a, of a life's journey. It's more out of interest towards an event. And you want life's journey, you don't want an event. Because there'll be another event next time that's more interesting than this event. So get people who want to do life's journey with you. Does it help? Yes, sir. The question is for the sake of the tape. Uh, comment on finances, uh, fundraising. And there are about as many options in that regard as you can imagine. Um, there are those who get fully backed, 300000 for for the first three years, and you get those who go and plant who are bivocational, who salary themselves and support themselves. There are those that churches support uh, 20, 20 hours a week. There are those that um, uh, the wife goes to work so the husband can plant. I mean, I can give you about any option. Um, the, for me, what, I, I, what, what we have found the most helpful is that one church or more, but one church that they planted out of back them. I think that is such a cool thing. You know, I loved my daughter getting married, kind of. She left home. That was the bummer. But you know how cool it was to put money into the day and she got the right dress made in South Africa and the conversations and the scribbles and the drawings and, and then you pay for all of that and there was such a celebratory moment. And for me as a pop, so it was such a cool thing to know, you know, I paid for that. I think churches should get to a position where they get really excited about a marriage. In other words, a leave and cleave. I'm leaving you to go and establish a new family called a church plant. And um, I obviously don't know your story, but we strongly encourage guys who want to plant to connect in with churches who understand church planting. They want to be involved in a multiplying model. And then the actual financing of it, We've had times, Nick will tell you, where we've had no money. We've had, for a number of reasons, uh, we've had to send guys out without any support, financially, but not out of desire. And then there'd be times when able to back them fully because of the church kind of financial ebbs and flows and the economy and so on. But I would say to be planted out of a church where there's a great church planting culture, where they want to send people with you and where they want to back you financially. That's the strongest base that you can plant out of. And when a church gets that, it is costly, guys. I can't lie to you because we've had such a church planting culture that we raise someone up and the moment they really are valuable to us, we plant them. So you're always dealing with rookies. So your ministries really get good because just when someone is getting a ministry up and running and it's getting strong, it's a good time to plant them out. And um, so you do forfeit something in the short term at home base. But the long term, the benefit of your seed being spread out over a city and a nation, that is just sublime. That is just phenomenal. So try and get planted out of a community where there is. Secondly, find out there are lots of organizations that have money available for church planting. But just read the fine print. See if, um, if there's um, what the obligations and commitments are. So I don't want to be unkind, but can I use a really crass word? Because you don't want to treat them like a prostitute. I'll use you for my good pleasure. I don't like that integrity. I think do your homework. See if there really is a collaborative partnership into the future. 
Um, and then um, see if there are people who can back you. Um, I'm not big on personally, but that can just be I've got an issue um, on people raising their own finances. In other words, taking someone's tithe to support me. Um, don't see that in the scripture, but that could just be my issue. But I love it when churches back. Um, one of the churches that we that's a church planting hub have what they call the apostolic avenue, where when a couple or a team go out to plant, they, 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 they get the middle of the church and everyone lines up, almost like a wedding, and they sing over them and they pray over them and uh, there's offerings taken for them and they're blessed. And I think that is such a kingdom celebration rather than you kind of skulk at the back door and you count your pennies and you eke out an existence. But I close with this question by saying, if God's spoken, you go, whether you have support or don't. You go because God's spoken, you know? And we will get tested with those things. We handed over now, we handed over our church at the age of 53, and we had no guarantee of financial backing. We had to make the decision that God had called us to do that. Now, the two churches that we planted in South Africa and led here, they pay our salary. They didn't have to. They do. They said, we believe in you. We back you. You're on your own. Go for it. Um, so that's also true of church planning. You do it because God's spoken. You do it whether there's money that comes in or not. But having said that, through churches and um, organizations, there is money available. The question is something on the lines of other parts of the world, church planning is a lot speedier. Here it tends to be a little bit more intentional and therefore a little bit more sluggish. Okay, good answer, bad answer. Good answer, I love the intentionality here. I, I do. In other parts of the world, if you've, got, if you've got 20 plastic chairs, a guitar and a garage, you've got a church plant going, you know? And, and that's cool. It, it's fun, it's speedy, it's hasty, it's, it's robust, it's unsophisticated, it's radical. And they're all components that I love. Um, you're just not going to pull it off here. Your culture does not allow you to do that. You try and go to Laguna and play guitar in a garage and they'll shut you down, you know? So on the one hand, it is a wonderful environment to have that robustness, but America is just a sophisticated world. You just can't get away with 30 plastic chairs, a guitar in a garage. So being intentional is culturally significant and essential. I have no problem with that. I think the bad answer, Matt, is this, that I think some guys are really almost holding the sword, the Democles sword, to the leaders. I will go and church plant if you give me a team, you give me a worship leader, you give me a kids ministry person, you get me a facility, you pay me money, then I'll go and I want to spank their bums. I want to say, you, I want to actually crack the whip. I want to chase them out and say, you don't do it. I've had guys say to me, I'll go and church plant if. I say, excuse me? No, no, I'll go and church plant if. And then they have their list. And I say, buddy, you get your butt out of here. You ain't going to plant a church because God's spoken. That's what you do. You, you just want to be mollycoddled. You want to be babysat, you know. Oh, honey, I'll marry you if you cook food for me every night and you wash my dishes and you make sure that I have my towel warm in the morning when I go for my shower. And she'll say, suck eggs, buddy. I'm not marrying you. Forget it. Who do you think you are, you know? And I think that there's, there's in, in, in the American church culture, many of the guys, are, there's an entitlement. I'm going to pay the price, so now you better take care of me. And I don't think that's godly. I think you've got to go because God's told you to go.
Now, there are two conversations. So when I sit with a church that's releasing them, I have one conversation. How much can you support them? Do you believe in them? Can you release a worship team? Have you got people to help with kids' ministry? That's the conversation I have with them. But when I sit with the planter, I'm saying, buddy, you go because God's spoken. Have the husband and wife sitting there together. You go. You're going to sacrifice? Long hours? Sleepless? I, I paint an honest, real, raw picture. Because I, I just think that there's an absence. Matt, if I'm honest, there's an absence of gutsiness. When Todd you, Proct uses that, he says, I'm always speaking of gutsiness. I am. I think, you know, what's the single most important thing to church plant? Guts. It's not money. It's not money. It's not team. It's not buildings. It's guts. You go because God has said, and you stay there and you fight it out. You slug it out, you know. Um, I, I, I think that we lose that raw sense of, of naked fight when everything is just laid out. Uh, Driscoll speaks of the Starbucks generation. We've got these Guy, 27, 28, 30 years old, who stay at home and work at Starbucks. And, and I think that has filtered its way into the church community. Let's create church planters who go because God's spoken. Let's create churches that have a passion to back them fully. But they're mutually exclusive. You know? Um, yeah, I can say more, I can tell more stories, but that's the essence of it. Yes, Adam. Well, I think, Adam, the, the question for the type or for this, uh, the podcast is how does one link the Ephesians 4 gifts to train up, raise up, release, bring the church to maturity, the 1 Corinthians 14 text where everyone, when you come together, everyone brings something, and then the modern church. I think we, we, we'd all probably say fairly honestly what we see today as modern church is not what we see as Bible church. Exactly. If we can agree with that, that's the real. Now, let's reach out for the ideal and say what does the ideal look like? Well, parts of the ideal clearly is an engaged priesthood. I mean, everyone has um, the, the British um, Oxford professor, what's his name, uh, McGrath. Um, yes, he's written a book, Christi uh, Christianity's Dangerous Idea. You know, It's very dangerous. Why do you have a religion where people can hear God for themselves? I mean, it's really scary. Why don't we just have a religion where we can hear God for people? That'd be a lot safer. This stuff that people can hear God for themselves is a very dangerous idea because they may hear what we don't want them to hear. So we live in um, a deactivated priesthood. And every, gener every move of God, Adam, God restores that. And as the move of God lifts, or whatever we say happens, we go back to the known, to the celebrity-driven, to one or two key personalities. We drift back there. One of the things I wanted to say about Hebrews is that I wonder if the mystery of who wrote the Hebrew author, uh, who wrote the Hebrew text, isn't there to remind us that in the last of the last days it will be a nameless, faceless revival generation. It's not going to be full of celebrities, super studs, you know, the fancy guys, the big conference speakers. It's going to be ordinary people like us. Um, so from church, from church real to church ideal, an activated priesthood where people can hear God for themselves and they can operate and exercise their gifts. Number two, it's also true that all the gifts don't have the same capacity. I mean, we were laughing early on. If you've got a 20-minute preaching gift, please give us 20 minutes. 21 is durable. 25 is exhausting. 30, kill me. But there are those who, who can teach for an hour and it's very easy. We're like, we got it. You know, we're happy. Please carry on. Um, God doesn't give gifts in the same measure. 
There are various capacities. There are levels of anointing. Those things are true. And we have to live comfortably with that as well. I think the third ingredient, there are different seasons, as on a farm, there are different seasons in the church where we need certain gifts more consistently. Just the nature of the time. It could be a greater moment of prophetic. God's stirring us. God's moving us on. There's a challenge. So there'll be a greater muscle of prophetic contributions. Then there'll be times the congregation needs to be loved after 9-11, you know. In in New York, if I was pastoring, I'm hazarding a guess. I'm going to get in the pulpit full of love. I'm going to to love them. I'm going to care. The worship, everything's going to be scripted around uh, affection and participation, shorter sermons, higher end stories of God's goodness and miracles. You, You would adjust to the season. What we've done is we've got one system. That's why I said what I did right at the beginning intentionally. The beginning God created. We take a system. God doesn't operate in systems. God has ways. That's what Isaiah says, the ways of God. So the ways of God, we lock him down to an hour, hour and a half. We're going to have five songs. We're going to have a sermon. We're going to have the offering. We're going to have this. And, and, and God has no room to express his unique emphasis at that moment in time. So there's the priesthood, this capacity. There is what that season in a community desperately needs. And fourthly, there's the objective in mind. What is the objective? Most of the American churches today is really to placate and appease. We want to keep people as, as many people as happy as we can for as long as we can. But if that isn't, if it isn't to placate, but it is to create obedience, then you would do it differently. You know, you put a bunch of rookies into boot camp at Pendleton, and if the drill sergeant wanted to placate them, or he wanted to ready them, he's going to do things a different way. I remember I was 22, I go to boot camp in the army, South Africa. I've got long hair, I've just come out the army, I've just come back from honeymoon actually. Just got married six weeks before. And the amazing thing, the first morning, no one got up and said, are you okay? You know, we know that the train only came in at two o'clock this morning. Would you like to sleep on a little bit? I mean, I heard the guys cussing and shouting from way down the hallway, and I knew it was going to be a long day. Your objective defines your means, the ways in which you do things. So those four things come to mind. Hopefully they're helpful. The question is, uh, Ephesians for gifts, how they operate. There are many different positions, and I'm obviously going to be biased with what I say, and not everyone would necessarily agree or hold to the same opinion. Uh, firstly, they, the, the ascension gifts. In other words, they're the gifts that Jesus operated in when he went Uh, returned, he gave those gifts to men. And uh, it's almost like he took himself, cut cut himself up five ways, and now from our vista till the end of the age, make those gifts available to the body. Number two, that means they're timeless. They're not for a season or the first hundred years of church history. They're right through till the end. Until the church reaches maturity, we're not anywhere near those gifts hanging around. Number three, churches try to have all five of those gifts in a local church. I'm not so sure that's true. I'm not so sure. I think there can be times or seasons where those gifts are all residing in a, in a locale. But I don't think that's the objective. I hear some guys say, well, we want our apostle. Who's our apostle? We want our prophet. And I think we miss the conversation. I think that's not the big piece, the big centerpiece. The big centerpiece from my vista is that every 
church plant, church replant, mega church that wants to become a movement needs the investment of those five giftings. Um, and each of them for different reasons. Apostles, what do they do? Well, some people say apostles, you know them because of the miracles, quoting Paul and the Corinthian epistle. Uh, but we're all supposed to be doing miracles, Mark 16. So that's not the major gift that is distinctively different from all other gifts. I think the true apostolic gift is the foundation layer. Uh, it's the word that Paul uses as the master builder in 1 Corinthians 3. It comes from the, 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 the mixture of the architect engineer. And I think authentic apostolic ministry is not seen by the size of the church or the profile on TV or the books they write, but they really get into the trenches of local churches and lay foundations. Every church needs foundations, and we want to build up before we build down. Back to your question, Josh. We want to build up before we build down. We want you know, how many ministries we've got, and how many programs we've got, and how many staff members we've got, and how many de- departments we've got, but we haven't laid foundations yet. That takes two years or more to lay foundations in a local church. Well, but Paul says it's Jesus. It's the gospel. But it's how the gospel expresses itself in different areas. How gospel expresses itself in worship, in prayers. Uh, uh, Acts 2, 42 to 47 is a great little cameo of healthy, vibrant local church life. You know? um, so it's ensuring that all the key components of healthy leadership um, of, 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 of brotherhood and camaraderie, of, of strong, healthy, vibrant families, of people who know how to pray and fast. You know, I, I, I listen to some churches, forgive me for saying this, but I listen and I never hear prayer. So I'm thinking, bro, there is a cornerstone in your foundation that's missing. If your church never prays, everyone gets together fasting and praying and you sacrifice and you give up and you get on your face and you lay hold of God and you press into God till he speaks, there's a component to your foundation missing. Um, All of these are like big slabs that lay the foundation and authentic apostolic ministry comes in and helps lay those foundations and or identifies which of those components are missing. Not to slap you on the back and say, wonderful, preach a good message, give me an honorarium, um, I'm out of town. You, you, you are in the trenches working with those churches to ensure that those components are right. When you lay foundations, when the church is new, like you're going in. When a church has been through a storm, there's been a split, there's been immorality, there's been financial mismanagement, um, there's crisis of some, like the tsunami hit. Who do they send into those houses on the waterfront? After that hurricane came through in Houston, I went and stood there where I stood six months before and looked at these incredible houses on the water, gone. But some are crook, some are cracked. So an engineer comes in and looks and he says, demolish, repair, demolish, repair. That's what an apostle does. He comes into a church with a calamitous story and says, we've got to pull that down. That's unhelpful. That woman's ministry, that's unhelpful. It's a cesspool of rebellion. Close it down. Not bossy. That sounds bossy. It's not bossy at all. It's, it's a father heart. Paul says, I come to you as a father in Thessalonians. You know? It's a father's heart. It's a collaborative journey. It's not bossy at all. There's no CEO ingredient in that at all. Um, so new foundations, calamitous foundations. When God wants to increase the profile of a church, in other words, there's, he will invariably get in and you'll work the foundations. Otherwise, what will happen? Law collapse. And there's pressure on the old, thin, fragile foundations. Boom. 
And so you come in and you, you revisit all those conversations, gospel-centered leadership, gospel-centered marriage, gospel-centered families, gospel-centered worship, prayer, community, philanthropy, social justice, all those spokes that come out of a gospel-centered journey. And that's kind of what apostles do. It's really not glamorous. It's not, it's not you get the big gigs at the conferences. It's in the trenches with the churches. Yeah. Uh, what would you say the role of apostles is to local church elders, and specifically to raising up elders? Yeah. Um, what? Great question. Elders are, again, if we look at the old covenant picture that Paul uses to lens this thing through into the new, they really were the senior, credible um, men in the community who now sit at the gates and really uh, govern and facilitate the coming in and the going out of people the well-being and health and well-being of the community, the economic well-being, etc. So there's a strong governmental component. There's a strong leadership component. There's a strong, the major words that are used for eldership is episkopos, poimain, poimano, and presbyteros. Presbyteros is government. So the point is those are local guys on the ground doing those things. Apostolic ministry comes in and submits to them. Always. It's never this way. If you have people who say, well, I'll be an apostle for you, but they end up controlling you, that's not in the Bible at all. You come in under, you submit to the eldership, because you will leave Dodge, and they will need to keep loving, leading, feeding those people. Um, and so it's always in submission to, and always. Anytime someone wants to come between your community and God, boot them, man. Just cock that six-shooter of yours and just blast them out of Dodge. Too many guys got a got a, a him and a thing, got a pulpit, will travel, and want to start coming in and controlling the church. Nothing must ever stand between your local church and its leadership and God. Nothing. That's why Paul uses in Philippians chapter 1, he speaks of our partnership in the gospel. We are tracking together. We're alongside. Paul never assumed an over. He always assumed an alongside position. So you come in, you come in in submission to the elders, you come in alongside them, you, you partner with them, you collaborate, you give a perspective, you kind of consult if you want to use a business term, but ultimately the elders have the highest governing authority in a local church, and I, I am absolutely passionate about that. It always gets messed up when we mess up that arrangement. Sorry, Brad, you wanted to ask for a while. There's another question, um, but... I wanted to hear you talk a little bit more about marriage ministry um, and just kind of maybe just some practical things for you on not shutting ministry. I, I've heard some people say, hey, you need to turn the mind of ministry off when you're with your wife. Other yeah. people are like, no, that's kind of just your life. Yeah. Ministry is your life. Yeah. Um, can you speak, like, I agree with phone off, but talking about ministry with your yeah. wife. And because my wife is so ministry-minded, we yeah. find ourselves talking a lot about it. Yeah. That could also our marriage, so. Yeah, great question, Brad. And I think it's one of those, it's one of those things that there isn't a, a kind of a, a, a rubber-stamped answer because each couple processes differently. Um, my counsel is that in your marriage, um, ensure that there, that there are times, there are times we need to process. I come back, Meryl didn't come with me to England. I took some young pastors, as I said. So when we came back, I needed time because Meryl processes that with me. So it was unapologetically set aside, and I literally go through every day with her. 
because that's how we do marriage. We, I preached there, I met there, I spoke to this person afterwards, because that's how we do our marriage. It's a very verbal, high communication marriage. But then there is the intentional time, all right, babe, talk to me. What was it like while I was gone? Any problems? How are the kids doing? Now it's focused on the kids, and we kind of change our hats now, and we invest into that. And then, how are you? Tell me about Meryl. Who did you hang out with? Who did you have tea with? Did you find anything cool at anthropology? You know, I've got to know those things. I mean, how do I know if my wife's having a good time if I don't see an anthropology thing on my credit card? I've got to see it sometimes, you know. If there's nothing on the credit card, these are sad days. I've got to see some love on there somewhere. She popped in there this morning. Dropped my boy off at school. So I, I, don't, I, don't, I think it's foolishness to say never. I think it's wisdom to invest intentionally in those different areas of our lives. Ministry, family, personality. And then I think there has to be a, a dreaming side. Um, Meryl is a person who loves beauty. It's what refreshes her. Um, that's why she married me. I mean, you, you, you got the connection right there. I mean, I don't have to say it. Words don't have to spell it out. Um, and so my, my, my uh, privilege is to put her in the context of beauty, a forest, a beach, a uh, park, somewhere where she can enjoy beauty. So it's not just the functionality of ministry or the kids or her. There's also just that space of creating, the space of dreaming, the space of ideas, the space of what ifs, the space of uh, what should we do for anniversary, those spaces. And uh, what we tend to do is we discuss those creative, beautiful spaces least, and we discuss ministry spaces a lot. And my suggestion is try and shrink this one a little bit for healthy current marriage and open that one up a little bit. Let the dream, creative, refreshing, let that be. So one of the things we've done for years, not every Monday, but we love, even in South Africa, we used to go for long walks along the beach. And we do that here. We love going out to Huntington or Newport or Crystal Cove. And we just go for long walks, you know, because that's the space, the waves, the ocean, the beauty, the mystery, that refreshes us, you know. So we kind of get the ministry, how was the weekend behind us, and how are you doing, babe, you good? And then we get into the dreaming spaciousness, and see that bird, isn't that incredible? We saw a, 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 an eagle, a very rare eagle, catch a fish, but hook it at Crystal Cove, and land it because the fish was awkward. And all the seagulls came. It's just this, we stood there just marveling for about 15, 20 minutes. Just this rare moment. It's a buzzing moment, you know, for us. It's a kind of a buzzy adrenaline moment of, wow, can you believe that? Um, and that's the refreshing part of the marriage. where we, we have a little adventure. There's just something cool that her and I see and we've done. Hey, listen, guys and girls, thank you so much. Really, I'm amazed you found the tenacity and fortitude to listen to this voice drone on for hour upon hour. Thank you. I really appreciate it. You're all busy people. And for those who've traveled distances, Matt and Andy, for inviting us. It really is. I just loved it. We, 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 we love, honestly, I, I've got to say it carefully because I don't want people who don't plant churches to think that they're not heroes. They are for different reasons, but... You're putting your hand up. You're, in, you're engaged on assignment. You're saying, God, we, we're going to take this thing head on. And I think there is a smile in heaven for your obedience, your tenacity, your fortitude. So thank you. I, I'm, I'm sure we'll see each other around with these kinds of events. Great. Well hosted. The guys at the back, appreciate it, man. 
You're always there, you're always before, and you leave afterwards, but uh, we really appreciate it. So, muchas gracias. Thank you very much. Brother. All right, man. Appreciate Thank you. It.